story about the Buddha, Robert Rucci. Walker is portrayed by Ed Harris, an outstanding American actor who specializes in half-charming, half-psychotic anti-heroes. Harris has also appeared in Under Fire, To Kill a Priest, The Abyss, and Alamo Bay. He also played the astronaut John Glenn in The Right Stuff. Tonight, Harris portrays William Walker, an adventurer from Nashville, Tennessee, who in the mid-1850s invaded and made himself president of Nicaragua. Walker was something of a Renaissance man, newspaper publisher, lawyer, Edinburgh University medical student, and was betrothed to the most beautiful woman in Nashville, who happened to be a deaf mute. He had extraordinary luck in battle and was reputed to be impervious to gunfire, although actually he was wounded several times. Walker was funded by the shipping magnate Cornelius Vanderbilt, and for several years was reported to be the most popular man in the United States. There's not much more that I can say about this film since I am its director. I personally, I'm very fond of it. There are those who are not. For an impartial assessment, why don't we turn, as always, the BFI's monthly film bulletin. Ed Harris's performance is contained, fixated, and charismatic enough to make sense of Walker's constant switching along the spectrum from liberator to dictator. Cox's direction does a lot of switching of its own along the spectrum from peckinpah westerns to the apocalyptic scenarios of Hodorowski and the visionary excesses of Herzog. Closer to home, Walker may have been intended as a political cut-up on Leicester lines, but unfortunately came out as carry-on contras. Yeah! <laughs> the unthinkable has happened. The United States has invaded Nicaragua. An American has declared himself president. Be prepared to sacrifice yourself for freedom and justice for religious conviction. Stand up and fight! Walker, it is the God-given right of the American people to dominate the Western Hemisphere. It is the fate of America to go ahead. Do you prize democracy, Walker? More than my own life. We are utterly dependent upon Cornelius Vanderbilt. His ships are our lifeline to the United States. Traitor! 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 <laughs> it is I who shall save the life of this country! What should we do about Walker? No one will remember Walker. A film by Alex Cox. You all might think that there'll be a day when America will leave Nicaragua alone, but I'm here to tell you that that day will never happen. I swear that we will never abandon the cause of Nicaragua. Ed Harris, Peter Boyle, and Marley Matlin. Walker.
pipes, the pipes are Hey, Norwood. How's it going? From Glen to Glen. Town. Town. You only have one box. Gotta kill him now. We're gonna kill him later. Save my baby. Save my Okay, welcome to Movie Night Extravaganza. I'm joined as always by uh, John Ross, host of the John Ross Show. Uh, Jay Andrew World, who, among other things, works at GTAA and uh, has a has a show on uh, on bad movies from the '80s, bad takes. Um, Kenzo Shibata of Meet the Left and the Kenzo Shibata Show, and of course Varn, uh, you know, the guy behind Varn Blog and. Um, Zero Books uh, Wrangler, as as, yeah. I, as I introduce you every time. Doug Lane Wrangler. <laughs> um, yeah, that is sort of my sub job. <laughs> yeah. So how's it going? These two movies were uh, even wilder than I remember them being, and I remember them being pretty wild. So. <laughs> you, are, you, own, you own Walker. You own yeah, like I own Walker. Yeah. 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 I, it's actually, it's actually one of my favorite movies. I remember, like, I got obsessed with it when it was hard to find before the Criterion released it. Um, it's still pretty hard to find. Yeah, it's it's not on their channel, and it's not on any streaming service. And um, the only the only streaming service is apparently one that uses library cards. And multiple mm-hmm. people lent me library cards, and every single time it said, "Oh, sorry, we don't recognize that library card number," which I would assume just means that you know NBC Universal set that up as a fake streaming service or something to like reject <laughs> anyone from getting to Seawalker. Um, yeah, I just I, use a sketchy website, and then I'm gonna buy it though on Criterion because I um, I'm kicking myself for waiting so long to watch both of these films. Um, I, I think it's definitely worth it. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna go ahead and make that purchase. Oh, yeah. although watching them side by side, I see how 1987 ended Alex Cox's major movie fe- uh, yeah. theatrical release career. Yeah. <laughs> like, like apparently, both these movies lost hella money. Um, uh, I think Straight to Hell, which was supposed to make money to help them, uh, you know, finish up Walker in Nicaragua, actually cost them money. Like. Most of it, apparently, I think it made like a fourth of its budget. Yeah, and and the money, the money that even if it had made a lot of money, the money that they were trying to make, they were going to funnel to the Sandinistas. Right, which like it would be something that would probably have gotten Alex Cox's uh, career blacklisted either way, because obviously it's happening at the same time that Reagan is funneling a shitload of money to the Contras, um, and and the Senate's kind of voting on these like military appropriations bills in order to, you know, subvert democracy in Nicaragua. So, you know, taking the other side of that is, uh, is very, it's extremely interesting, uh, an interesting way to tank your career, to be honest. Um, it's kind of very, like, 
I mean, the story's got a very like heart of darkness kind of feel to it. Like, yeah, you know, he was like getting deeper and deeper and deeper into this and losing kind of maybe some of his own humanity. And it, it, it gets across in the films. Yeah. Um, so this is, this is something that I wanted to play to start this out. This is, um, Alex Cox and the, I think the other producer that he was working with talking about, um, how they chose Nicaragua as their like passion project. And it's like, I don't know, this is kind of a, an interesting, I think, uh, model for DSA types to look at because, you know, he was an election watcher in Nicaragua when mm. they had the, um, the, the Sandinista election. So it, it starts out there. So I think it's a, it's a perfect thing to be playing. You actually have a, there's a, I believe there's a decent story about the moment you decided you had to make this in Nicaragua. You explained before that there was a motivation to um, pour American dollars into this country at this, at this time. But you met some Nicaraguans at one point while you were down there who convinced you that you had to film in their country. Could you tell I, that I, I, yeah, that's, uh, th yeah, actually, that's a good, that's a good reminder because I had gone down in 1983 as a kind of volunteer election observer because after the, uh, the triumph of the, of the Sandinista revolution in 1979, um, Nicaragua had the first like free elections that country had ever had. And uh, there were people there from the European Union and people from other countries there as election observers and stuff. And I went down with another with a friend of mine from the US to, to just check it out, you know. And so um, on election day in 83, which is when Sandinistas were democratically elected. Um, we um, we ended up in a hotel with a couple of guys who were veterans of the war that was already ongoing against the Contras. And um, these guys, you know, there was there, there were two guys who'd been invalided out of the Sandinista army because they were wounded. And so we were having a couple of beers with these guys, and and one of them said, "Well, why don't you come down here and make a movie?" And my, I and my friend was a producer we, we started to go oh well you know it's very difficult to make a film and you know it's hard to raise the money and this guy goes listen man don't give me any of that nonsense we made a revolution here we're really poor you live in america the land of money go back there raise some money come back here spend it in nicaragua make a film and help us and so that's still happening. okay Yeah, so that really, I mean, it feels like it's using the film, like the power of film. I mean, maybe ultimately they failed since it didn't end up making that money. But it seems like it's um, using the power of film to actually do something transformative. Um, not just, you know, alert people about the existence of, you know, U.S. imperialism and, and our role in, in Nicaragua in general. Because by the end of it, like, you really, you, you, you understand that it's about Reagan and, and you know, our role in the... Um, like, you know, I mean, like Iran-Contra and the, like, funding, like, funneling money in to defeat the yeah. Sandinistas. Like, you, like, there's no, like, by the end of, by, by that helicopter scene, like, at the end of it, like, you 100% know that that's what they're talking about and not, like, the 1850s. I mean, I mean, like, throughout, throughout the whole movie, obviously, there's a lot of hints, but, like, that's the most kind of heavy-handed I think they could possibly get with that. So it's, it's not just using um, the power of film to inform but it's using the power of film to really, you know, raise money for a cause that, you know, he believed in. It's kind of like I put new wave mutual aid. Like, I mean, when you have uh, literally the government selling arms to Iran to fund the other side, you know, what is Cox doing? Making films. We're doing what we can. Sorry to interrupt you, Derek. No, no. I, it's interesting. As far as his success, he actually did get the money to Nicaragua because they paid for everything up front. Um, it just effectively ended his career. 
Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. I went back and read a lot of the reviews of this movie from the time because it was roundly panned um, contemporaneously. Like, yeah, very it, negative. Yeah, it feels like Siskel and Ebert would have get would have given it like negative reviews as they could have. Like, it was <laughs> it was kind of amazing, and I was trying to figure out why because um, this is what um, Gene Siskel called the movie. He gave the film zero stars and called it, quote, <laughs> unquestionably one of the worst films of the year, made even more shocking because it was directed by the often instead of Alex Cox. Uh, Ebert gave it a, a rare zero star rating as well. Had the same feeling. What, what I find interesting about it is that from a filmmaking perspective, it's not the wildest thing Alex Cox has has done. It's 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 not Sid and Nancy either. I mean, Sid and Nancy's like basically a pretty standard, you know, prestige punk drama. If you know, if there is such a thing, that's that movie. But it's it, it has a point. Um, it was a point that Hollywood was mostly would have sided with Cox on at the time, you know, like the military infiltration. Of Hello. The military infiltration of Hollywood was uh, was not as as thick as it as it was as it is now. Although I would say this is a time period where that's really changing. It's like eighty six, eighty seven is where you start getting all this military consultant on Hollywood movies. Um, Ed Harris gives a an enigmatic but pretty pretty conventionally convinced. Uh, conventionally well-acted performance. Again, we're talking about Alan Cox, who normally asks people to act like crazy people. Like, Mm -hmm. he normally wants the most heightened acting out of actors he can possibly get. I mean, you just look at... And he finds finds actors that are going to give him that performance, which, I mean, Ed Harris is definitely one of them, but, like, Dennis Hopper was obviously in Straight to Hell. Like, you know what I mean? Like, he finds people that are going to give him... I mean, Harry, Harry Dean Stanton, obviously, in Repo Man, like... He finds people that are going to give him performances that do make you say, like, okay, what the fuck did I just watch? And a lot of them are musicians, too, which which kind of, you know, like, like because musicians are, are certainly, uh, you know, they know how to perform uh, at the very least. Whether or not they're good actors, that's a whole other story, you know, depending on who you're talking about. But but they, they're always great on, you know, in film and smaller parts. Because you know they 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 know how to perform, so you know he stacked the deck heavy and straight to hell with uh, with musicians from uh, Elvis Costello to um, uh, the drummer to um, Xander Schloss to um, all the Pogues, all of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, <every Yes>. <laughs> and their and their their four remaining teeth between all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I love. <laughs> Yeah, the, the craft service table is just a shelf full of whiskey. I was actually interested because I, I I had to remember that Courtney Love was actually in Sid and Nancy in a, in a mm-hmm. secondary row too because I was like, yeah. this is really early for her. Like this is pre Nirvana. This is pre her getting oh. with Kurt. It's way pre Hole. It's it's like it's it's like five or six years before Hole. It's um, right around the time she was in uh, Faith No More. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So okay. she, she's. She was around. She just, you know, uh, people don't always remember that, that she was the uh, front woman to Faith No More for a short while. Um, they, there's yeah. some bootleg recordings, but no actual studio recordings. Is that, of that the time. period between what's his face and Mike Patton? Like that gap? 
I think she predated Chuck Mosley. I think oh, you're wow. right. But but she okay, was in yeah. for like just a hot minute and then Chuck yeah. Mosley kind of like, like he kind of like was you know, that was when they were forming like what the band was going to sound like and the look and everything. Right. And she wasn't, you know, as good as she was, she wasn't it. Yeah. They were, they wanted a, a guy singer and mostly was that type. Mm -hmm. I just, I well, it's, it's hard for me to imagine faith. No more headed by Courtney love actually like, <laughs> like, like particularly given the next 20 years that happened, but uh -huh. it's, um, this isn't Gen Xers getting all weepy about our youth, but uh, <laughs> um, well, no, technically I, I'm millennial, so <laughs> but that doesn't mean I don't like Courtney Love because I have a soft spot. But. Um, I'm I, your sweetheart, Courtney Love. <laughs> well, the, the thing is, Courtney Love. Yeah, her her solo actress. out that. Go, go ahead. ahead. No. Well, as go I say, ahead. her solo out that 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 that's the name of her like one and only solo, solo album that was just so bad. And she spent like months in uh, the Chateau, I believe it was called the Chateau Marmont, Marmont? In, in, yeah. Marmont in France. And she was just so, the story is she's just, she was so coked up. She was on drugs. She was doing like everything, uh, every God forsaken drug known to man. And it just ruined the album. According to Linda Perry, who was, who was the producer. I, I it, it's interesting to me because she's kind of a much better actor ten years after Straight yeah. to Hell. Um, yes, yeah, she was not. She's she was a terrible actor in, in Straight to Hell, and <laughs> she experienced a lot of life in that ten years that would just kind of weather her. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, but acting also... comes from a place of truth, you know, at, at, at your core. So mm -hmm. uh, yeah, from what I understand, the ultimate uh, uh, rock star. Uh, female she's well, the ultimate behind the music rock star person yeah she was like a trust fund kid but like people liked her because she was genuinely creative and interesting yeah so like that's why she was able to find herself in all these places and then eventually landing in yeah. uh you know meeting the, the people that were whole and, yeah. and i mean i i also understand like like uh i was uh hanging out with somebody who actually uh knew kurt and courtney back in the day and uh uh, we were talking a little bit about this and, and, um, this person couldn't stand Courtney Love, like, like, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I can get that because like, she just seems like somebody who just kind of comes in and is a lot of a lot. Um, but at the same time, I, you kind of have to, um, you know, I think that was just kind of like making up for the fact that, you know, she wasn't one of the guys, but she was just as good of any of the guys there. A and, um, you know, she gets slagged with like sleeping her way to the top and it's just like, well, but she holes good i mean yeah. like legit you know even um uh the, the the first album they did with um uh kim gordon as producer yeah like you there's know a, there's a there's a famous uh lana del rey quote who's like someone else obviously that gets accused of like sleeping their way to the top all the time and she was like well if someone had like tried and would have given me a record deal for it like definitely but you know <laughs> never happened and I, I don't know i feel like that's the perfect way to counter like mm -hmm. you know what i mean like counter like one of those accusations because i you know there's so much talent in the music industry like especially at this time you know what i mean there were yeah. so many talented people like overwhelmingly so that i feel like the sleeping their way to the top thing is unfair yeah Not, i think I she did her own thing now. Yeah. but like just like all the the boys in rock and roll like if she if she's gonna reach that echelon she's gonna date kurt cobain uh trent reznor billy corgan because i mean who else is she going to uh, date? Like one of her fanboys? Like, 
You know, yeah, well, she, she dated kinda, Eric. She dated Eric, her guitar player, briefly. Yeah. Before she got with Billy Corgan, and that's a whole other other tale there. <laughs> What's interesting right, about well, yeah. about about uh, Coxo is there's kind of a contradiction. Yeah, I, was to, I was about to transition back to that. <laughs> you know, there's kind of a transition that relates to Courtney Love here, like Cox. Um, because in Straight to Hell, way more than in uh, Walker, there is a sense that he's getting he's almost proving how cool the people he hangs out with are. I mean, I I, I don't. Like it's a good movie. I quite enjoy it, and I agree with 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 uh, Andy that getting musicians who know how to ham it up to ham it up is great. But I was like, who isn't cool, famous of the of the mid to late '80s in this movie? And I mean, and it's interesting. Xander because- Berkeley, <laughs> good good um, pal. <laughs> um, it's 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 interesting because I'm like. On one hand, I find this movie interesting and, and kind of brave in that, like, it even takes that non-narrativity thing that we have in Repo Man and amps it up. Uh, yeah. We talk about Straight to Hell here. Um, and um, it does a lot with bits that that are... that. If you go to that movie expecting a plot, you're going to be mad. If you run with any given bit, you're going to have a lot of fun. But there is a sense where I'm like, this movie's it just feels like they got a lot of people drunk and coked up in the middle of the Spanish <laughs> desert and like and just recorded how much fun they had, which is great to watch, actually. I mean, it, it, it is it is objectively amazing to watch, but I have a harder time defending it than I do um Walker or Repo Man because I don't I really don't know that it's saying anything. Um, it's not well. It's not saying anything. It's literally a movie that's supposed to be funding the Sandinistas, mm-hmm. and I mean the script is written in six days. They're hanging out in the desert. Within less than a week, they write the script to this. It's disconnected as fuck. Most of it seems to be improvised. So I don't think that you can really take it. I think the the reason that I included these two movies together for this week is that I think you have to watch them both because I don't necessarily think that um it, it kind of felt like almost like a fully fleshed uh, student film. That like, you know what I mean? That like somebody was trying a bunch of stuff and a lot of it worked. Like, you know what I mean? A lot of it was cool. It seems like, um, you know, the, the outfits in them are at least are an inspiration for uh, Pulp Fiction. Like, you yeah, know, I was about to say, movie. like Vincent Vega's Vincent Vega's suit is in this movie. Like, yeah. it, it is almost verbatim. I was like, whoa. Um, and uh, that dude was kind of channeling Samuel Jackson, too. Um, yeah. Uh, the guy yeah. from Repo Man. Well, he's not, but he's not channeling Samuel Jackson because... Pulp Fiction no, hasn't come out yet. Other way around. You know yeah. I mean? No, like, yeah, it's the other way around. But that, that you know. Yeah. No, I'm just so, saying because kind of what I find... most people come to Pulp Fiction first, so you know, yeah. I'm just no. But that's know. kind of what I find yeah, like, amazing is that you look at you know you look at uh, Straight to Hell and you can see all these influences that would later come up in Pulp Fiction. And I mean, you know, Tarantino is someone who obviously voraciously, uh, you know, voraciously devours movies and filmmaking, just as Alex Cox did. And so it's really interesting to see um, experiments that it felt like Alex Cox was doing with his famous friends in the desert, uh, turning into probably one of the greatest movies of all time. Um, some of those ideas in Pulp Fiction. Yeah, I, I think mm-hmm. that's that. That's this. This movie feels like it's an idea generator, like a Velvet Underground album. That it might not work in yeah. and of itself, but there's so much that comes out of it. 
I also think about, I mean, Jim Jarmusch being A in the movie, but I think about a lot of, there's a lot of Jim Jarmusch movies that are unhinged, you know, uh, think like his most recent zombie movie or whatever, um, that have this same kind of feel. And you're like, oh, okay, I get the relationship to Alex Cox now. Like, this is, he's, you know. And I wouldn't have I wouldn't have ever thought about that actually. I would have I would have thought that that was purely Jarmus. Uh, but seeing this movie, I'm like, nope. You know, there's so much manic energy coming out of this. Um, this movie but, could have been titled uh, "Coffee and Cigarettes." Right. <laughs> well, I mean, both of them came out of their own punk scenes, you know, because uh, mm -hmm. we talked about that before with Repo Man and um, uh, Jar Jarmish came out of the uh, uh, the New York punk scene, uh, hung out with yep. a lot of the No Wave guys, which is why he was friends with. John Lurie and they did um, uh, a bunch of stuff together back in, you know, back whenever, uh, you know, the early days. I have a weird, I have a weird Jarmish uh, connection because my dad, when he was an architect in the city and I was trying to tell the story when we were talking to Lee Phillips, but then I got distracted in the middle of telling the story, but my dad was an architect in the city working for a firm. And I guess um, Jim Jarmish had looked at their firm to uh, look into like the, the apartment he owned or the house he owned. And my dad went and like toured his house one time so like my dad met and like hung out with jim jarmish so my whole time mm. um my whole time like growing up as a kid and now I've, I've, I've seen it but even before i saw it as a kid i had a dead man poster in my room that uh that everywhere i moved i would i would put up the poster like on the wall <laughs> in my room with johnny depp holding the gun like against the like this like that one shot at the end of uh dead man nice so it's fun every time i see jim jarmish i'm like I'm like, hey, like I, I know that guy. And then mm -hmm. we, we were talking about uh, fishing with John too. I remember seeing that yep. as a kid. Which is a fun show. If you if you ever seen that, John Laurie goes fishing. Um, it's entirety, it's it's brilliant. Yeah, the entirety of uh, the Dead Don't Die, the new zombie movie he did, was filmed um, in the Hudson Valley, like near me. Like mm -hmm. you can drive around. Oh, cool. Twenty minutes around my house, and like you can see, like there's like a diner in. Um, over by like Woodstock and uh, I always forget, Phoenicia. The Phoenicia Diner is the diner that they're in in, the, in that scene in the beginning. And uh, I don't know, it's all like different places that you can actually just drive around this area and look at. It's it's fascinating to why I think Cy Richardson's like an unsung hero of, of of all these movies. He's in every one of them. He's in Repo Man. He's in Sid Nancy. He's in. Um, uh he's in of course straight to hell as the as the vincent vega proxy and he's the he's he's also in um walker and that man has a plastic face because i don't recognize him from movie to movie i have yeah. like i no, 100%. Like, like he he's he's you captain hornsby the black the black captain and walker and like i'm like he doesn't look like the same man. Mm. And it's the same year, too. It's not like <laughs> there's time that's passed between those two movies. They're filmed around, like, at the same time. You know what I mean? Like, one of them is filmed as they're going down to Nicaragua. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so it's like that change has happened between those two movies around the same time. It's like a month. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he's been, he's been in a lot of stuff, actually. Um, and I would... And I've seen most of it, and I didn't realize that I was like, I don't know how I don't recognize this guy. Like, um, a lot of them are, are B movies, but like, he's even in like the Dukes of Hazard movie as a as a as a bit character. He's in 
like um, the faith of our fathers. He's in Larry Crown. Like this, this guy has an IMDb page that's like a mile long, and yet, and he's an amazing character actor. And yet, I don't think I've seen people really utilize him the way Cox does. Like, <sighs> but yeah, it's it's interesting because Straight to Hell kind of did fail as far as funding the Sandinistas, but mm. Walker really didn't because since they filmed it there, all the money would have gone up front from the investors directly into Nicaragua. Um, and that's, that's interesting. It's interesting. The performance that, that he gets out of Ed Harris. Um, and it's interesting what they do and don't change historically because everyone's complaining about how historically inaccurate the movie is. But the only things I could find that were really wrong was that his abolitionist wife, um, was already dead by the time he invaded Mexico. Um, and that it wasn't Cornelius Vanderbilt, but a Morgan who put him up to go into Nicaragua. Um, yeah, but Vanderbilt that kind of, wasn't I mean, involved. That's, that's, that's it. Almost, that's it. Those yeah. are so minor. Like, yeah, no, I feel like I feel like any any of the Morgans and Cornelius Vanderbilt could just be like swapped out. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. And Peter Boyle, either way, like he was awesome in this. Like he, <laughs> yeah. that that's a side of him I didn't really see before. It's actually not the way I would have picked. You know. Uh, Vanderbilt, you know, I, I uh, has this kind of gruff guy who farts and whatnot, but uh, yeah, he, I, love, I, love, I love his I can do whatever I want, and just to prove it, he just farts. And that, <laughs> that I like, thought that I was watching like a Mel Brooks film for a minute during that, yeah, scene. right. And, it, and it's, <laughs> it's totally different than everything else that follows it because mm -hmm. obviously you're watching something abhorrent and like kind of terrifying, and that moment is just like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll roll with it. Like, <laughs> this, this man is so grotesque and disgusting that he's just willing to like just like he can fart on command too like <laughs> it's, it's, um, it's interesting so I wanted, yeah. go ahead no i was gonna set up just quickly um oh uh, yes play. good old good old ronnie <laughs> yeah good old good old uh war on drugs and lots of hugs ronnie reagan mm. no i was uh just thinking about Harris's portrayal of Walker, though, because Harris was fascinated with Walker because Walker starts out as an abolitionist and somehow mm. is like fronting. Now, this isn't in the movie, it's just something I know for the Knights of the Golden Circle. So I know how I said that there were all these conservative forces in the South that were anti imperialist, which was true. There's this weird minority clan offshoot called the Knights of the Golden Circle who wanted to, um, before the Civil War, expand slavery all throughout um, Latin America by taking by taking over um, all the all the the former Spanish colonies and then turning them into slave colonies to it, so that the South could um, dominate uh, U.S. politics by flooding the 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 Congress with new states that were all slave states and the, it was a, it was an actual conspiracy run by the people ca called the Knights of the Garden Circle. And Walker gets mixed up with them, even though he was known for until, until the middle of his invasion of Mexico of being a rabid abolitionist. Like, and so like, that's why Harris tried to portray him as moral in the beginning, because he was actually, I mean, to be a to be an abolitionist in Tennessee in 18, 1830, 1840 is actually brave. Like yeah. so mm -hmm. it's it's a weird he's 
he's a character that like I actually don't think Ed Harris portrays him as strange enough the more I read about him. Like it was like it was like wow, this guy is nuts how his life goes. Yeah. And I mean and, and it's it's also interesting that you know um the whole like he's the most popular man in America for a short period uh part of this like you know what I mean like cuz as as everything kind of falls apart for uh the slave states you know it, it starts to be like um how do we get more slave states well one way to do it is to invade central america and turn those mm-hmm. into slave states so it, it's at a very interesting period where um i think i think the, the forces of imperialism and the forces of uh like confederacy um aren't always interlinked it, like aren't always interlinked like it, at sometimes they definitely are but it's it's interesting that you know you can you could be an imperialist and be anti-slavery like as as Walker was throughout most of it, but you can also be an imperialist um, for the purpose of obtaining more slave states because you know obviously the balance is starting to tilt as the civil war approaches really fast. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to I wanted to play the um like the, the Reagan Sandinista thing because I think it's really interesting uh, putting this movie into context because. Some of you know Reagan's dialogue in this. This is a year before they went um, down and they and they filmed this, so it's uh, 1986. So some of the dialogue is is like eerily similar. Of course it is, but like you know the whole like we're liberating the country for democracy uh, point is 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 very well uh, illustrated in this. A billion dollars in Soviet blockade, the communist government of Nicaragua has launched a campaign to subvert and topple its democratic neighbors. Using Nicaragua as a base, the Soviets and Cubans can become the dominant power in the crucial corridor between North and South America. Established there, they will be in a position to threaten the Panama Canal, interdict our vital Caribbean sea lanes, and ultimately move against Mexico. Should that happen, desperate Latin peoples by the millions would begin fleeing north into the cities of the southern United States or to wherever some hope of freedom remained. The United States Congress has before it a proposal to help stop this threat. The legislation is an aid package of $100 million for the more than 20,000 freedom fighters struggling to bring democracy to their country and eliminate this communist menace at its source. How can such a small country pose such a great threat? But it is not Nicaragua alone that threatens us, but those using Nicaragua as a privileged sanctuary for their struggle against the United States. Their first target is Nicaragua's neighbors, with an army and militia of 120,000 men, backed by more than 3,000 Cuban military advisors, Nicaragua's armed forces are the largest Central America has ever seen. The Nicaraguan military machine is more powerful than all its neighbors combined. This map represents much of the Western Hemisphere. Now, let me show you the countries in Central America where weapons supplied by Nicaraguan communists have been found. Honduras, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala. Radicals from Panama to the south have been trained in Nicaragua. But the Sandinista revolutionary reach extends well beyond their immediate neighbors. In South America and the Caribbean, The Nicaraguan communists have provided support in the form of military training, safe haven, communications, false documents, safe transit, and sometimes weapons to radicals from the following countries, Colombia, Ecuador, Brazil, Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, 
and the Dominican Republic. Even that is not all, for there was an old communist slogan that the Sandinistas have made clear they honor. The road to victory goes through Mexico. If maps, statistics, and facts aren't persuasive enough, we have the words of the Sandinistas and Soviets themselves. One of the highest level Sandinista leaders was asked by an American magazine whether their communist revolution will, and I quote, be exported to El Salvador, then Guatemala, then Honduras, and then Mexico. And he responded, that is one historical prophecy of Ronald Reagan that is absolutely true. That is Alpha. <laughs> Good old B movie actor. Um, yeah, so no, but like, you know, not him, I mean like the quote. Right. Yeah. The... Well, I mean, so I mean, I think an interesting thing about that is that obviously in order to uh lead your country into a revolution like the Sandinistas did, like a successful one, there's always like a level of bombasticity, I guess, that has to come from revolutionaries. So it's like, are you going to take over the world? And obviously, you know, every revolutionary on, on the cusp of victory is like, we're going to take this across the whole world. The Marxist revolution will be successful. But then you have someone like Reagan, like a, like a vile propagandist who sees that, which is, you know, a, a statement of, of bombastic nature that is meant just to, you know, project strength in the face of like U.S. US imperialism, like literally putting the boot down on a, on a nascent democratic movement. Um, whether or not it's a it's a Marxist movement, and you know that statement is taken as like gospel. The same way that uh, you know he mentions Gaddafi a bunch of times. Gaddafi's entire thing, <laughs> Libya, was you know th these quotes that were so fucking outrageous that like anybody anywhere else in the world would have been like, I, like I'm not going to take this seriously because you don't have allies uh, in the Middle East to start with. Like you're not going to go, you're not going to overthrow the United States because like you don't even have, like you can't even overthrow other countries in the middle east like nobody wants to be yeah. your ally like you're just you can't some guy get through that... egypt <laughs> yeah you're like a, you're like a, a propaganda um there's like i don't know gaddafi was kind of like a i mean watch uh watch adam curtis's hypernormalization like uh, uh literally gaddafi is just like a u.s state manufactured threat in the sense of you know in the middle east nobody's taking that seriously and uh, but like his bombastic quotes are like, you know, something happens and Gaddafi's like, oh, I did that. And it's like, there's <laughs> clearly no evidence that Gaddafi has ever been near that place in the first place or would have the resources to do that. And the U.S. State Department just goes, well, he said it. He said he did that. And it's like every other country is, is, is doing investigations that say like, including like European imperialist powers are doing investigations. They're like, yeah, we can't. There's no way to tie Libya to this. Libya doesn't have the resources to do this. And the Reagan administration trying to create like a like a threat is like he said he did it. <laughs> I mean, it's it's it was interesting because in some ways the Sandinistas are 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 a perfect candidate for this. They're a fairly for a revolutionary uh, socialist group. Their their programs actually kind of moderate. And in fact, honestly, later in their, their regime, they end up having to neoliberalize for a variety of reasons that I don't want to make too many excuses for. Um, As did the rest of the world around them. Right. <laughs> I mean, there, there, there are, but actually, weirdly, the, the biggest holdouts were, the, were like the post Peronists in Argentina, which means that the holdouts were rightist. But it's, it's, it's one of those things. Um, I, I, I tend to, 
to talk about people re- read the shock doctrine book um uh by Naomi Klein which which is a book that I loved until I got to the conclusion and got really mad at the book and threw it across the room and kicked it um <laughs> because I was like so you want us to do center left policy but you you mapped how every one of these governments got caught by capital flight and or foreign pressure and uh, had the neoliberalized. And that's what happened to the Sandinistas. And and um, and actually, interestingly, um, when they when they fell out of power because, you know, for, for an evil Marxist, Libyan communist dictatorship, they never suppressed elections. Not once. Um they they were actually in a weird position where the their opposition was split half of it to the right of them and half of it to the left of them like it was it was you know their history is kind of wild so i mean ortega ends up being a major opposition figure the reason why he's so important for for the for the reaganites he was a a real marxist leninist you know was militarily trained in cuba you know like they could throw that at them and that was that worked in 1985. Like, um, and it was, it was interesting. I, I, I suspect the Soviets would have liked to have uh, a Nicaragua that was probably a little bit more on their side than, than the mm. Sandinistas actually ended up being. But it was, it, it, they were able to throw that out there, but they had no real evidence that they were doing that much. I mean, they, like, even in that video, like, Reagan really catchy. He goes off, there's weapons everywhere. Then he lists the aid, and he's like, and maybe they gave weapons to one or two radicals. Like, even he does it in his own speech. Like, he, he can't, like, even when he's lying, he can't make up that much. Um, yeah. You know, and this is right after he did effectively, like, we also have to remember, this is right after he effectively got away with, with Grenada, like, which they invaded under similar pretenses, even more laughably. Yeah. Um, so, which, by the way, which, by the way, is a, is, is a thing that gets, um, I think, mocked pretty wildly in, in Walker, um, <laughs> where they keep saying the city of Grenada, which is a city, obviously, in Nicaragua, is Grenada. So they're like, oh, you mean Grenada? And he's like, no, I mean Granada. i I mean i don't know i think i think walker is an amazing movie for that reason they were able to fit so much uh stuff into that it it, it's a it's an amazing movie because it add it it manages to throw historical shade and contemporary shade at Mm -hmm. the same time Mm. perfectly like i love my favorite my favorite line in the entire movie is when um like like the, the the woman that he's like on and off involved with that's like you know also like the the you know the consort i guess of the president that he puts into power um when she's like when she's like we are both aristocrats and he goes i'm a social democrat and throws her <laughs> off <laughs> now, now um did anybody uh actually have subtitles for any uh for half that movie because because I, did. I didn't <laughs> The I only did. way I could watch I it, there was no subtitles. So I'm just like, I, I, think that was, you know, on, I know enough Spanish to know she's saying that the Americans are crazy. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's about it. <laughs> but I think that's, I think that's on purpose to throw you off from kind of knowing. Yeah, I just, I didn't know the if there movie. were subtitles and and just you know, there, you can turn them on in the Criterion. I mean, I, I understand Spanish, so I didn't need them, but like, yeah. you can turn them on in the Criterion edition um, and get them. Um, it's, it's hilarious what she says over and over and over again. Like, um, but 
what I think I found interesting about the movie is Cox actually understood um, the weird divisions of like race cast and 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 uh, in Latin America really well because um, she's a peninsularis, which means she's from Spain, um, which from the the racial view in New Spain were were racially superior or racial maybe not the quite the right word but they were they were they were seen as being better people than criollos which are whites um by by the american standard but they're born in the degenerate new continent yeah and so that yeah, there's the second it's the second generation of of spanish people born in in into that right yeah and they're they're lower down on the on the la casta system so like um, that's actually factored into the script about how people are navigating with what side and the fact that he, uh, that Walker, like the first concession that's made that the movie doesn't even point out that like he's conceding not to the liberals that brought him in there. All right. But to the conservative royalists who were already in power, like he conceded to them immediately. Um, like you know, by giving them the presidency in this faux manner that yeah, you know, but it, it's it's interesting because it, it sets up that he's willing to betray principles like from moment one. Well, he has. I mean, he has no principles throughout it. If he did have principles throughout it, he wouldn't have gone down to Nicaragua in the first place. You know what I mean? Like he goes down because, and obviously, you know, um, saying that his actual wife, like in you know, in in the real story, died before he invaded Mexico, which makes a lot more sense. Like. She's like, oh, you could go down and invade Mexico, but come back up here and then don't do anything else. Like, it makes sense why. Um, yeah. But like, you know, it, it from the beginning of uh, the the movie, it makes it clear. I think that he's going to be, betray his principles just just by going to Nicaragua. Um, and, and at the same time, he has no control over any of the people that he's leading in the beginning of it. So when he says like, oh, we're going to liberate it for God's or God's science and hygiene. Um, and then everyone just immediately starts beating the shit out of each other. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that in itself, like these speeches that don't actually connect to anything that's, that's going on on the ground. I also love the, uh, the drummer, um, who's just yeah. like, I, I, I'm going to trade my drum for a gun. Cause, cause the drummer is always gets shot. And the first person who gets shot in the, in, you know, in that scene is the drummer. <laughs> well, it, and that sets up, that sets it up perfectly too, because he says, Oh, no one, nobody under my command is going to die. In, and in most this, of his command battle. dies. Yeah. And then everybody <laughs> right. under his command is just getting shot to, to bits. Um, I, I was trying to remember where I saw the drummer, what movie, and he was the, he was, uh, John DeTuro's brother in, in uh, Do the Right Thing. I realized oh. that a lot, like, <laughs> which I don't know. I, I just thought that was funny. Um, cause I, cause for the long time, for the longest time, I was racking my brain, like, where do I know this guy from? And it's, it's Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing. It's interesting to think about this whole filibustering movement because we don't we don't talk about it much in U.S. history. But basically, everybody who gets inspired by Texas's little gambit, which wasn't doesn't seem like it was initially intentional to um, be invited as economic whatever by part of a state uh, by part of a foreign state, go in mass. Um, in Texas' case, have some of your people get pissed off that that they ban slavery. Um, uh get 
actually did get kind of massacred um, and then and then respond and then have the United States swoop in as a pretext to absorb it as a state, which um, really kind of begins uh, the Mexican-American War. And this is how we get everything from the middle of the middle of Utah all the way down um, to just above the Rio Grande. We bought the rest of it to the Rio Grande a few years later. Um, but it's it. We don't teach that other people tried to do that as a strategy, like um, when uh, the the Republic of Sonora thing what, uh, was, you know, that was what Polk wanted initially, um, was to take all the way down, um, not just Sonora, basically all the way down um, to just north of uh, of Mexico City, um, and they kept trying to invade Sonora and um, Zacatecas in those areas up in the north um, to to try to take them over to then pull the stunt to force another war so that they would force them into states. Like that was the that was the model. And it was all based off Texas. Like Texas became and we don't think about that. And, and I know I wasn't taught that in school that like there was a bunch of Americans who were trying to like siphon off other parts of South America by doing the Texas gambit. I, uh, I took uh, Texas history. So they do not teach it like that in Texas. Oh, they don't, they don't teach it like that in Texas. Yeah. Y'all, um, y'all don't know. <laughs> um, Whatever carpetbaggers. So I, I, I remember taking, uh, cause it wasn't that many years ago. I remember taking, um, like American history or whatever in, in, in college. And I remember being briefly, like it was briefly mentioned, like, Oh, like, you know, one of the strategies used by um, Southerners that wanted to keep slavery going, especially where was to like, you know, go into parts of South America and try to take it. It wasn't put forward as like a, a, a strategy, like filibustering, like with a name and like a plan, you know what I mean? Like that was something that happened a lot, but they're definitely, I, I remember um, taking a, like, I know hearing about manifest destiny and the continuation of it, uh, you know, down farther than it would have gone um, as a, as a, as a way to preserve our institutions, as they say. <laughs> in yeah. I was definitely taught um, that manifest destiny was kind of a value neutral thing. Like it was a force of nature and uh, people believe it at the time, but you know, but if they didn't believe that at the time, we wouldn't have, you know, McDonald's today. I think that was kind of the, the package of it was like these things had to happen and they happened. So be it. Yeah. Well, while that might be a viable excuse for France selling the Louisiana purchase to the United States like that, that was something that was it, it's not imperial in the exact same way, although there was a there was a faction of anti-imperialist, anti-federalist who who did view Jefferson as a traitor for buying that land. Um, oh, yeah, definitely. Um, because he, had, he had kind of come out against similar um, expansionist proposals in the past. But then, you know, you know, there's always like a deal that's just so good. You got to take it. Yeah, I mean, Napoleon yep. was apparently selling it for pennies on the on the like hundred acre or something. It was crazy, but when you when you the, the the rest of the West, no, that was deliberate, and it was it was way more aggressive. And the other thing that we have to remember after the Monroe Doctrine, I mean, because the Monroe Doctrine sounds good when you're an American, you don't think about it. You're like, oh, we're kicking out these European imperialists, and we are. I mean, you know, and that leads to the War of 1812. We're going to kick out the British, get them out once and for all. We're going to kick out the French. We're going to kick out the Spanish. 
And then you think about it and go, yeah, but we use it as an excuse almost immediately to 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 really dominate um, our quote sphere of influence unquote, mm. which is which is Latin America, particularly Mexico um, and the Caribbean. But like we use it to dominate. Well, like, we'll try to dominate all the way down to Chile. Like hell, we can do that. Who cares? Like that was and the general think, attitude. Yeah, and and I think something that Walker does really well, and then we got to say goodbye to Kenzo because. He's about to have his uh he's doing DSA coverage, which oh yeah, doing doing doing, doing God's work over there. Um, <laughs> tale of too many platforms. Um, <laughs> um, no, so I, I, I think that um I think that one one big thing, I think he he scheduled it in a way that you know purposely knowing that we do these like two hour streams, he was like, I'm gonna get out of it and what I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna set limits this time. But um <laughs> <laughs> but no, so I, I think that the movie, um, like like Walker portrays it really well in terms of, you know, um, at least at this time, I, as much as, you know, communism is used by Reagan as a as a buzzword, like, oh, this is a Marxist government. This is a Marxist government. Like, you know, the Soviet Union is going to take it. It really comes down to business interests and the history of um, all of our like the, the reason why we overthrew so many governments, like the reason that we did so much regime change was business interests. And before communism was really able to be used as a as like a scare word like you know instead of like john foster dulles being like oh well you know the companies that i'm representing don't like the fact that 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 you know this government's taken over and kind of started to push out united fruit or push out someone that um you know uh started to push out someone that 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 really um that that i'm representing that really doesn't like this new government because they're nationalists and they're reforming things like you know instead it becomes the soviet union is going to use this as a uh like like the soviet union is, is going to use this as a jumping off block in our backyard and that really you know it pushes castro in cuba to become you know, probably more radical than he would have been at least mm. uh you know in terms of his his language because at one point he's just a nationalist that overthrows batista and then you know has to kind of make the um <laughs> has to kind of make the 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 uh you know the switch to using the soviet union for aid because all of a sudden you know he's his his nationalism isn't enough and nationalists like arbenz get overthrown you know uh non-violent nationalists like arbenz get overthrown by the u.s government with impunity so yep. you really have to to instantly kind of take this uh take this soviet this pro-soviet position if you're going to keep power which castro was really the one person who did so it's kind of a perfect thing that you know it's it's in this movie it's vanderbilt or you know i mean in real life obviously it's um it's not but you know like yeah. so it, it's it's this idea that you know it's the business interests that really push out these governments and making a, setting a movie in the in the 1850s instead of the 1950s or the 1980s um makes that point abundantly clear because we would have been doing this either way the cold war just happens to be a, a an extremely um you know it's, it happens to be just a good excuse to do it because people are like oh well we don't want communists in our backyard but like at the same time, we were doing this for decades before that, or like even at some points, like like a century before that. And we were just like, well, I don't like that this company's being pushed out, and everyone's like, well, you know, I don't really give a fuck that like I, I like I like having fruit, or like I like having you know uh, lumber, or like you know what I mean. Like, so I think the movie does a good job pointing that out. But uh, Kenzo, yeah, I mean, thank you, thank you for being yes. on the show. All right, for us, thanks for you. inviting me. Good seeing all right. you all again. All right, take care. Watch the Kenzo Chibata show. Watch Meet the Left. All yeah, it's every Sunday. Show. Thank every you. Every Sunday. You take care. But uh, I, I was but, yeah. just gonna 
say uh, real, uh, you know, if, if I mean, it started way back from the founding of our country. Uh, we wanted to take over Cuba. Um, uh, I think it was it was uh, Jefferson who said um, uh, that Cuba would be a great state. And, um, yeah. you know, th this, uh, you know, in the uh, uh, after the Spanish-American War, you know, we designed both their uh, Cuba and uh, Puerto Rican flags, which is why they look so much like the U.S. flag. Mm hmm. The Platt Amendment, the Platt Amendment forces them to, like, literally their constitution has to be written by us. Their president has to be appointed by us. Like, they, they don't have any over any say over that. They're, and for a small time before the Platt Amendment can even be um, be accepted by Congress, they're literally just, uh, like, they're not a puppet state yet. They're just literally a territory. Um, which, yeah, which is the I point mean, I've, been arguing, I've been arguing this point with people for, for a really long time lately because, you know, everything's happening in Cuba. The reason that Castro stayed in power for so long isn't that necessarily the Cuban people love Castro's government or love, you know what I mean? Like, like, like love the, the government's hold over things. The reason is that, it, that there's two choices. The choice is either be dominated by the U.S. with the State Department constantly trying to literally fucking starve them to death or be dominated uh, by somebody within their own country. Um, but that is providing for them, like providing a life for them that has thrown out people that like, you know, has destroyed the class system in the way that existed and that that it's still their government. It's a Cuban government. So when people argue like, oh, well, you know, we just have to keep the like the same way that in Walker, they argue like, oh, we're liberating the country for democracy when they're like, we have to overthrow the Cuban government in order to um, like in order to, to free people. It's like, number one, you don't fucking believe that. But number two, the, the choice that, you know, people in Cuba have been facing for six decades, which is why Castro has managed to survive this long. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be right, right back. All right. No, so the reason that the reason that Cuba has been able to survive this long is that the it's, it's, it's their independence, which might not be the independence that they want. It might not be the democratic system that they want, but it still is their independence or U.S. domination and imperialism. I, I would even go like... A little further. I mean, the, the the thing with the Platt Amendment, like, look at what we've done in Puerto Rico. And when I was in when I was in elementary school, I remember this is this 1985, 86, 87. We were taught about Puerto Rico. And we were taught that it was a it was a commonwealth, but it chose to be a commonwealth, which is wrong. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, and that because of the Platt Amendment, there's a referendum every so many years and that if they ever choose not to be a commonwealth, um, to go independent or to become a state, um, we would we would recognize it. Now, twice in my adult life, that referendum has come up, and Puerto Rico has voted to be a state because they would be is they since they know they're not going to get independence, being a state would at least give them representation. Um, guarantees support from the federal government in some ways when the currency collapses, the, the more clear rights to FEMA support and stuff like that. And also kind of end it as a uh, experimental neoliberal state, which is kind right. of how we've been using Puerto Rico for the past 70 years. Right. Also, so, I mean, also probably just stop them getting shelled by fucking us planes because I've, I visit Vieques every single fucking year and you can't walk on the fucking parts of the beaches of Vieques because there's unexploded mines that literally right. are and and the fucking island has radiation on it because of fucking like military experiments. <laughs> so so I was taught this and I in my adult life they have pocket vetoed two referendums where they voted to become a state according to the Platt amendment we're supposed to at least vote to ratify it they don't even do that. 
they pocket it so that they so that they so it is not even shown that they're like turning Puerto Rico down. And you've yeah. lived through it twice because in both times there's been Republican Congresses. Yes, we've, there, we've has, lived through it. We've lived through it more than twice. We've lived through yeah. it every every couple years. And the thing is that the last the last referendum referendum they did um, was I think in I think 2019. The only two options yep. at this point they dropped the idea that um, that that there there's an option where they could have been independent. They didn't ha even have that on the ballot. That it was. Do you want to remain a territory? Do you want to become a state? All the other ones under the Obama administration, the Obama administration ignored, don't get me wrong, but it said independence, statehood, territory. This last one, they they completely even dropped the, the you know, they dropped the idea that they would even be independent in any way, shape, or form. They said, oh, well, people don't support independence, which is not true, but the pro-independence people uh, sat out the, the, the vote because what else could they do? The referendum or the, the plebiscite, I guess, is the correct term for it. And, and then they... um. Yeah, and then they ignore it anyway, which of course they fucking do. Like it didn't even get brought up in like, you know, what I mean, in the congressional session, but like it's like the, these options are getting more and more limited throughout our lifetime. So we've seen right. both uh independence or statehood referendums and we have seen one that's just statehood. Do you want statehood? Literally the question was, should we be a US state? Yes, no. That was the last one in 2019. Hasn't gotten brought up since. They nope. voted for statehood hasn't gotten brought up since. And you notice the Democrats haven't like brought it back up when they, I mean, cause oh, in, th in theory, I mean, I, I know they always have the Senate to blame. They can kayfabe that. Um, <laughs> in, in, in theory, um, the Democrats would like it because also in theory, they would, it would be one more democratic state. It wouldn't, and, but yeah, but it probably wouldn't actually, but that's what yeah. they think. Um, we uh when I Ben Ben and I had um Nomiki Kants on and mm. I've been to I've been to Puerto Rico at this point um I think four times in the last like I don't know like six or seven years I have like family that uh stayed like I have a family like I have family members that started a hotel um in uh Vieques because the my my great uncle I guess was stationed there at the military base and they ended up um becoming like unofficial veterinarians of uh, of Vieques, like literally, literally, like uh, um, his daughter is still there, and people just drop off whatever animals that they don't want anymore, like on their doorsteps. They have a hotel that's literally like an animal hotel. <laughs> it's pretty amazing, but um, yeah. So I've been there, and I've seen the un, like the 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 signs that are just you know you walk on the beaches, and it's like there's a path here. Um, there's there's a path here. Don't walk off the path because there's there's, there's mines from the military base that might go off if you walk there. Like don't walk in the woods, and that's a third of the fucking island is yeah. is a is a reserve. That the only reason why it's a reserve is because there's unexploded mines on there, and they're afraid that if tourists blow up, they're going to you know what I mean? Like they're, they're gonna they're gonna you know sue fucking Vieques. <laughs> so Which doesn't it, have much now to begin with. So yeah, and I mean the mainland obviously yeah. isn't you know I mean hasn't been treated any better, but still. I mean, it's 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 interesting. I mean, um, to study this stuff because there are a lot of conventional narratives, and you realize that the conventional narratives you're told, uh, the, the reason what we're told about the Puerto Rico thing by people in America is like the Republicans just want to allow it because it'll mean a democratic state. And you and I both know that I don't know that Puerto Rico's politics actually map on to to U.S. They don't. Community, but I I don't think they don't. 
I don't think that's what it would mean at all. And that's not why they don't do it. I mean, they also don't do it at all the places that, like, I've been. I've been to Guam several times because I was out in, in, in East Asia, and that's where you have to go. And Guam is, like, a forgotten U.S. colony. It's like American Samoa. We don't even think about the fact we have it. Like, um, and yes, those people are technically citizens, but it's it's it, they don't have the same political rights we do in yeah. Many, many, many ways. Yeah, we don't treat them like that because we treat it like a, uh, you know, like this economic experiment, um, you know, kind of like how I mentioned Puerto Rico was. Uh, mm. it, it, it's and, and these different islands are treated differently, too, because uh, um, uh, I, I, I can't refer to Squam or American Samoa that has the uh, like nearly slave type uh, treatment of, of the people out there. Yeah, I think that's I think that's American Samoa. Uh, yeah. Guam obviously has is, is a military like or it was like a military base. And That's we, it. Uh, yeah, and so I, I mean, you yeah, know, I don't. Like, yeah, I, I, I don't. I don't, not, about I don't recently, know. So. I know the most about Puerto Rico because that's somewhere that you know I care about because I've been there quite frequently, and I think that it's mm. um it's one of the most fucking beautiful islands that you'll ever. I mean, the mainland especially, but like Vieques too. Like it's one of the most beautiful set of islands you'll ever go on, and instead of being treated like you know like. Like, like an independent sovereign place, which is what it is. Like you don't you don't go there and think like, oh, like you know this is this is the same. Uh, like like culturally, like they have their own culture. They have obviously they don't like it's they they've developed their own traditions. Like it's it should be a sovereign place, and you obviously should be allowed to go there and like you know I mean like there should be trade with Puerto Rico, and they should you know I mean people like, tourism makes up a huge part of their economy. But like it shouldn't be a, a just a territory that has no political rights. But when you talk about how um, it doesn't it doesn't map out the same way that our divisions between um, uh, Democrat and Republican do, it doesn't because the statehood party is really the main one, and that's their their main issue is statehood. And a lot of the like uh, the the representative to Congress right now that Puerto Rico has was the head of Latinos for Trump, um, <laughs> which is an interesting fact, but. She she's the person who was uh, Trump's like Latino for Latinos for Trump um, election coordinator. So, you know, wow. and, and she and she's been elected multiple times and she doesn't have power the same way that anybody else in Congress does clearly. But like, it, you know, she still can go to Congress and talk about Puerto Rican issues as if she's like a guest or like sitting on it. You know what I mean? And well, well her, uh, her, you know, D.C. has the same thing. Uh, and yeah. um, they're, they're a congresswoman. Um, you know, occasionally gets up there and uh, delivers a barnstorming, uh, you know, uh, speech about whatever topic, but then can't vote on it. So, you know, it's it's almost kind of the same thing, except as far as I know, I've never heard of. Um, uh, and I can't remember the woman's name from from uh, uh, from Puerto Rico uh, either right now off the top of my head, but I've never heard her like giving any kind of big speech about uh, about a topic. Well, she she gave a big speech about statehood in 2019 when they had their statehood okay. yes or no. Yeah. So um, what I was saying about uh, GTA was we had Nomiki Constant, who does a lot of um, work reporting from Puerto Rico. So I kind of did a deep, deep dive into it, already kind of understanding where the lines are. Um, but I was still kind of blown away that their their congressional representative is like the Latinos for Trump lady. <laughs> I mean, not not that I didn't. There's a lot of conservative people in Puerto Rico, like you know, yeah. from a, from like a social standpoint, there's a lot of conservative people in Puerto Rico. So I'm not surprised about that part of it. But I was surprised that like, you know, she was just blatantly on like Trump's election committee. And it was just like, 
because there's all these speeches of her and like Mike Pence. Yes. There's a bunch of videos of her standing on stage with Mike Pence being like, the only way forward is Trump. And I'm like, I don't know. If, I mean, I don't think probably like, you know, Puerto Rico probably doesn't approve of that part of it, but like, who knows how much attention that really gets. Right. It really doesn't. <laughs> um, Isn't it just, weird though? I mean, yeah. I was just like, um, Varn left before I started talking. That's fine. No, Varn, no, Varn, Varn probably just, probably his internet was not, was acting up or something. I don't know. I don't know. Where Maybe I you got to figure it I mean, right. <laughs> oh, Isn't it weird though? I mean, I keep talking and. Yeah, well, you well, keep talking well, no, a lot. Never mind. Never mind. You were uh, just going to say, isn't it weird that Varn really supports that? Uh, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> Don't put words in my mouth, Andy. <laughs> I know Don't that's you dare put words that's in my you're mouth. Go, yeah, you're totally going to No, yeah. no. Don't you dare put words you in my moved, mouth. If Varn moved his laptop a little bit, though, you could see the 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 um, Marxist for Trump uh, flag behind him. So. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, socialism. I should be careful. <laughs> zero, I, the only socialist that I approve of, zero books, the one channel that I'll watch every day. Doug Lane, zero books. Be careful. Well, we, get, we, we, we get accused be of that careful. already anyway. Um, <laughs> we had, well, we had, go, go, ahead. go ahead, Forrest. No, we had, we had Doug Lane on two weeks ago. I'm going to release it on uh, on Thursday, so. I don't, you know, I don't nice. think anyone's gonna accuse us of uh, having a. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So I don't know. I I was trying to get off by nine thirty. So getting back to Walker. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because I I this is a conversation that I really like having about Puerto Rico because it's something that I get definitely like fired up about. Um, I don't. It's the the thing about going to Vieques and seeing the mines was something really that like pushed me towards like being as anti like I never I was always anti-war but being like as anti-imperialist as I am I think mm. going in the first time in um 2013 or 14 to Puerto Rico and and going to Vieques and literally just seeing those signs was something that like really made me see the depth of our imperialist uh project which obviously now I know way more about but like at the time I was like wait what the fuck M like mines like <laughs> Like, you could just, like, you know what I mean? Like, because it's not like it's fucking Vietnam. Like, it's not like somewhere we were ever at war with. Like, you, you could just walk on a beach and it's one third of a fucking island. And they're like, oh, just don't step on any mines. And by the way, like, don't eat any fish here because the fish all are, have radiation from the nuke tests. And it's like, first of all, the nuke tests. Second of all, mines. Like. <laughs> yeah, the, the mine thing is wild. I mean, that it's, that's true in Cambodia, too. If you, like, go to Angkor Wat and you venture off the path, you'll get blown up. And, mm -hmm. like, um, and it's it's wild. Uh, admittedly, Cambodia is a little bit more complicated because you have the weird uh, fact that you didn't just have U.S.-Vietnam tensions. You also had Sino-Soviet split tensions, which mean that the Chinese were actually helping the United States help the Khmer Rouge. Yeah. Um, no, the Khmer so, Rouge was a CIA asset for how long? Like yeah. decades, right? Like, 
Yeah, I mean, but it it it's it's odd because that leads to a war between China and Vietnam, which actually still affects geopolitics in the region today. Um, and so it's it's a little bit more messy out there, but it's the same thing. You just you're like, wait, why is this ancient monastery castle in the middle of a forest uh loaded with landmines? Like and half of them are Soviet and half of them are American. It's because I ate a, a, a burrito from Mobile, and you know, this, this forest is full of landmines. But no, <laughs> no, but like at least with I don't. This isn't me apologizing for any any of Kissinger's antics, but at least it's a region that we were that we had a bunch. There of... There was like, a war there, right? There's yeah, not a war yeah, going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. No, like Puerto Rico has been literally a, a subservient territory to the U.S. for two decades for the like you know what i mean like or over a decade at least like i think we took it in 1898 so like over a decade you, you mean two centuries centuries. Over, over a century wow yeah but, so, like, not two decades <laughs> <laughs> like it's been my it's been Man, way longer than my entire life so. No, so yeah so no so for over a century for like for quite a bit over a century um puerto rico has been a, a subservient territory of the U.S. Yeah, and we wanted to do that, that to Cuba. We wanted to do that. We try to do it to the Philippines, and I mean, people really. I was not taught about the Filipino Insurrectionary War during the quote isolationist period unquote in yeah. high school, and then when I, I learned about, about it in college, until, I didn't learn about it until uh, reading Stephen Kinzer's stuff recently. Like, I like I knew that we had taken the Philippines, but I didn't know that there was like a you know what I mean like a like a liberation movement that we just kind of went out of our way to crush which actually kind of fucked us up and so like you know what i mean like the u.s military like landed on the shores of the fucking philippines considering that fact like they fucked us up for a while mm-hmm. <laughs> and then oh yeah i mean basically how we got it, how, how we handled it was eventually kill everything yeah but like no burn like, like that's, that's the vietnam strategy right like if they're your allies, they won't be it by the time we're done. So, oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's not apologize. I'm just saying, like, it's. I'm just saying, like, there was a like you put it perfectly. There's a war there. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's in Vietnam. There wasn't. There's. There's never been a war. It's just like experiments that we wanted to do with nukes, like, which we have done all over the world anyway, all over the fucking Pacific, but like. A lot of them were like in the bikini atoll or whatever. Like, you know what I mean? Like places that people don't necessarily live, like throwing nukes into the ocean or into the desert to see what would happen. Like places that people weren't necessarily living. Yeah, although they it's interesting out here in Utah because whenever we think whenever we start thinking they won't do it to us, they'll do it to us. Mm-hmm. Um, because th- there was all kinds of people out in the Nevada, Utah desert who died of radiation poisoning because they didn't tell them they were blowing stuff up out there. Um <laughs> and um <laughs> good old no uh, oh um, he's definitely gonna have some thoughts uh, yeah but, but since we brought up new, new friend noam chomsky come on the podcast we've exchanged emails now <laughs> i would never i would never ask noam chomsky to be on a film podcast he's like he's in his 90s like i i'm not doing better that. This, this is yeah you want to watch four movies and talk about it on the <laughs> Or we could just like dissect manufacturing consent and just be like, "That's a perfect work. It doesn't need to be dissected." No, I was well, thinking about it today. A lot well, of just like not dissecting it like that, like just like taking it bit by bit, because I have been reading it a lot lately, and um, 
you know, there's just a lot of stuff in there I'm trying to understand, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think more than anything, it's kind of a strategy guide. Like it's a, you know, like talking about how, how media strategies have been used to obscure the truth, which I think once you read it in that way, like the examples in it are illustrative. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I did a, a separate stream and we're really off topic. I'll try to get back to Cox in a second, but I'm going to, I did a separate <laughs> stream though about the history of media in this. And the one thing I'll say is we do need someone to write a manufacturing consent for for the post uh, social media age because it works very yeah. very differently now, and yeah. and it's it's a little wilder and harder to control, and um, and that's something that I don't think we actually like. I think that's why like you have liberals who basically now are calling for like open censorship all the time because they don't have any idea how the hell they even could manufacture consent anymore. Yeah. Um, so it's, it, it's funny. Cause like, I think every third day I see someone from Vox tweeting about a crisis of legitimacy. And my response to them is like, well, why are you having said crisis of legitimacy? I, what's happened for the last 200 years in this country and why don't people trust you? I mean, even the crazy conservatives, like some of their reasons for not trusting you go back to shit like this. Like, yeah. I mean, they, 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 some of them know this history too. Like, and it's, right. it's, it is a serious problem um, for, well, for like, the liberal consensus in this country. Right. It's all that and more. I mean, Vox essentially is this sort of just clickbaity website as well. They did like, not to go far further off topic, we have to go back to the to Cox in a moment. But the fact that uh, they you they did like several like articles just blatantly talking about uh, uh, Trump, and it went on during the election, and it just went on for days and days, and it was just like too much. I'm just like, uh. but again, it's uh, it's sort of a clickbaity thing. Um, Silence. To, no to bring it back to, to, to Cox a little bit, to think about like, someone asked in the chat, uh, did he get blacklisted for this? And more or less, yes. Um, the the reasons given were not politics, they were financial. But um, he hasn't well, made actually... another movie with a major film studio since since these two movies came out. He hasn't made other movies, though. Yeah, he has made other movies. Like there's there's Repo Chick, and which uh, I have not watched. I just know it exists. Um, and there's there, there's been a bunch of like there's been a fair amount of independent films in the last 10, 15 years, but not nothing's that's had a, a major movie house behind it at all, um, or even like Miramax Lionsgate or any of that. Like it's been it's been super super indie. We're not. I have about. a I have a um a good uh clip for this actually okay where um and and interestingly enough i think because his, his career has gone well enough for him uh he doesn't seem to be bitter about you know the the semi-blacklisting financial blacklisting that he got but i think it's interesting to hear why he believes that this movie was blacklisted and uh, you know to that point right i, I think that you know, Walker was criticized right when he came out for being an excessively violent film. Excessively violent, excessively cynical, um, excessively hostile to the Imperial Project. Although in those days, there wasn't really an acceptance that there was an Imperial Project. 
now the, the imperial project is clearer and people are better able to understand the film and to find humor in it, you know. Um, whereas the 80s at that time were, were this kind of interregnum between the Vietnam War and the war against Serbia, the war against Afghanistan, the war against Iraq, the war against etc. You know, so I think it's easier now for people to understand what the film's about, and perhaps we were a little either behind our time or ahead of our time um, making the film. You know, then. I mean, I think it's an interesting um, corollary with um, you know Verhoeven and both Starship Troopers and RoboCop, which you know, Starship Troopers obviously came out a lot later than this, but, you know, this idea that during the Reagan administration, um, things about the Reagan administration don't necessarily get understood in that way. We're kind of in this frenzy of, like, post-Vietnam, like, America's back, baby, like, you know what I mean? Like, this weird imperialist frenzy to the point where you really can't, I mean, admit that there really was an imperialist uh, policy. And and if you did, it was kind of in the new left sense where you're, like, going against each... Uh, each project as it comes, you know what I mean? Like the left has lost that much power where it's like, you can't really make it an anti-war stance as much as like an anti this war stance. Oh, we shouldn't be doing this. We shouldn't be doing that. You know what I mean? Like, which is why it's frustrating to read something like uh Kinzer's the true flag, because you realize that, you know, deck this time decades <laughs> before that, um, you know, th there really was a, a legitimate question of, should we be an imperialist country? Like, and and obviously we had done, you know, by the Monroe Doctrine, um, numerous, you know, imperialist things, but we weren't necessarily an imperialist uh, project in the sense of, you know, doing all of these other things that we're talking about, like invading Cuba, invading Puerto Rico, invading the Philippines. That hadn't happened yet. So like, it was less a big debate between McKinley and uh, and Rose. I mean, it's funny because we always talk about the progressive era beginning with Teddy Roosevelt, and it kind of does. But it is also the beginning of 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 what is effectively the second and more virulent rave of American imperialism. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, the first wave is obviously uh, northern expansion than western expansion. But then after that, um, it's I mean, that's when we get. We buy Alaska, but like that's when we get Hawaii through basically corrupt land deals and yeah, our shady first, bullshit. Our first conquest, <laughs> right? You know, that's when we take the Philippines. That's when we take Guam. That's what that Spanish American War. We try to take Cuba, and then like, well, you know, uh, we we get Puerto we we get Puerto Rico. We get, I think we get American Samoa. I mean, like, um, and then. By the end of World War II, you have like you have like hyper steroids imperialism basically justified off the Cold War, and Reagan's yeah. well, kind I of mean, the process of that. By that point, where we are the superpower, like you know what I mean, like pre World War One, pre World War Two, we're an, an, an aspiring imperial country com uh, competing with England, competing with France, competing with. You know all these other countries that have interests effectively replacing them actually in in, in well, the country. I think, country. I think that that's I think that that's the point of 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 World War Two. Like we've replaced all those other countries. They're now kind of below us, and we're the number one superpower. And which is why we kind of have to invent this uh this 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 barbarian at the gates enemy in the Soviet Union because at that point, like you know, we want the we want the conquest to continue, and there's no one else really to dominate. Um, you know what I mean? Like we've my only counter narrative to 
that is I think if when you study the, the liberals in the early 20th century, they really were afraid of the USSR because there was a there was a viable workers movement in America before 1930, but actually really before 1921. And um you know, you have the Palmer raids and all that, but they were they were terrified of something like that happening organically in the United States. Yeah. Into the post-war so by the end of the post-war social contract, that's not really on the table anymore. Uh, part of that, I mean, it's one of the interesting things about American imperialism is it's hard to imagine there being another another imperial power like us, because how we kind of stumbled into it, and which is not to say that we that it wasn't intentional. It was clearly, but like we kind of bet. Oh yeah, oops. we're kind of bad at we are... it. <laughs> Yeah, but, not, we, but so is every other country that's ever that's ever done it. No, that I will actually say we're uniquely bad at yes. it. Yes. Well, well, like uh, uh, remember that whenever they divided up uh, China uh, amongst mm -hmm. the different imperial states, and the U.S. couldn't get into that, so we just went to Japan. Right. Like, yeah. like close enough to China. Would I say we're uniquely bad at it? I mean, part of the issue is we want it for until. Until the end of the, until basically the Bush administration, no one would admit that it was actually a fucking empire. Like, yeah. um, which, is and, what, which is what Alex Cox is talking about, um, right? Within within this uh, within that clip, I think. I mean, you know, the idea that we were even an imperialist project to begin with, right? But it it actually makes us kind of uniquely bad at being an imperialist project because we can't admit that that's what we're doing. Um. And that also means no, I, mean, I, I take I take your point on that. Yeah, I mean, like, like if you look at like the administration of Iraq under the under the British mandate, um, versus I actually have us. I have a counterpoint to this. When, uh -huh. Go when ahead. You finish your point. No, I no, just finish finish your point. But I actually I do have a kind of a counterpoint to this. Um. um but but what I will say about the about the 1950s is like how we became the hegemon is a little bit by accident because uh, against uh, as the transatlantic polity because we had all the wealth mostly because our was wasn't destroyed not because we even took it yeah we took it from latin america but like we didn't take it from europe we just let them destroy their own and we were the last person standing <laughs> and joined and, it late enough that that was the case right like we got, we got one fucking army base bombed and we're like we, we haven't forgotten it in fucking 70 years and so you know what i mean but no, I guess my counterpoint to that, though, is that it also makes us a uniquely um, and, and I don't necessarily think that this would be the case without the CIA. I don't think this would be the case without um, our, our obsession with covert operation. So I'm not mm. I'm, I'm not going against your point with that. But I so I, I think that it also make us, makes us uniquely um, good at it in some sense, because or maybe maybe accidentally good at it because we are able um, to like a lot of other countries do kind of appeal to us in terms of, Oh, you used to be a colony. Like the third worldist movement kind of appealed to us for longer than they should have. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. because Europe was like, Europe was the countries that were dominating those other countries. Um, you know, like, like whether it's Indonesia, whether it's India, whether it's Egypt, like Europe was kind of the one dominated them. And since we're a colony originally, like the third worldist leaders were were not trying to challenge U.S. Uh, hegemony, I guess, and and started and started asking for U.S. help in in overthrowing European powers. We're, we've been good throughout, like whether it's uh, 
you know, 1898 or whether it's uh, 1998, we've been good about pretending that we are, we've been good about pretending that we're the, um, we're, we've been good at pretending that we're the imperialist, uh, that we're, we're going to fight off imperialism and then becoming the imperial power. That's the right. Part I mean, that. yeah, I, I would agree with that. I, I, my only my only interesting complication that would be what I kind of agree with Dadney Besner that de facto, not de jure, there's been a transatlantic megastate since like the, the end of the British Empire, um, definitely since World War One. So like and by that, I mean, like NATO, NATO kind of runs things in, in in this sphere. And if you're in the imperial core, if you're if you're if you're like European Yes, they're not technically subject to us, but we all know that like they kind of are not anymore, not as much anymore. But like until basically um, Bush and France really being like, OK, that's that's a little bit too much and us getting really pissy about it. Um, we all kind of know that the Western powers pretty much are going to line up the way we want them to. Um, yeah. And but we're and, also there to, to pick up the slack in, in, in places like Iran where the uk loses control and we're kind of like oh we'll we'll help out with your oil interest right in, and and we in, also in lower their cost and, of of their own imperial projects because we fund yeah. most of it frankly yeah i mean there is a real sense that we like there is a real sense that nato is mostly funded by the us for our own imperial ambitions but also that europe benefits by like they can have social democracy and not pay for a military very much and and, and their social democracy can still be in the imperial circuit without having to invest a lot of military and that's uh, why they're not they're not paying their fair share right i mean it, it's it's, it's one of these things where like trump actually said something kind of true he said it for stupid reasons but mm -hmm. it's not like um again it's danny besner is probably better in this than me but like every now and then trump would like stumble in, and i think that's why he pissed so many of the like official them off is because like he would say stuff like for example and I know I know where you you know like Trump is a racialist there's no doubt about that but Trump was also like weirdly not big on american exceptionalism like which is well, which and, is and an interesting thing though like one of the most interesting things about that exact point is that if you watch Trump's first uh like Oprah appearance um <laughs> in like 1989 Eight. I think yeah, when That's he goes on Oprah, he's like, "Listen, we're getting we're getting raped by Japan. Japan is 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 coming in there, and they're they're outselling us with cars, and you know what I mean? Like, so his his first policy, um, his, like his first his first declaration is that America is losing, and we need to take back our our our, our supremacy of the rest of the world. Like from the beginning, that's Trump's point." From the yep. beginning, the American carnage, as he called it. Yeah. It's also interesting that that was when he was a Democrat. Um, and yeah. it tells you a whole lot about the Democrats of the, the late message 1980s. doesn't change. The message no, it change. hasn't. Yeah. I mean, also, but Trump's, I mean, if we were, we have to think back to the 80s and maybe like these are all bad takes movies more than uh, movie extravaganza movies. But you know how many until like the middle late nineties, how many anti-Japanese fucking propaganda movies there were about like the Japanese are going to take all our businesses and stuff, even though, and that's part of the Imperial core. We basically like they were, they were in our orbit. Um, 
They're part of our. Uh, they're part of our communist control system, and we're still afraid of it. Um, yeah, people are gonna. Yeah, a lot of out of context quotes today. Um, <laughs> um, but I, well, but, Trump. Trump was right in in a lot of his globe, like the, the statements he made for bad reasons, like yeah, which is yeah, an interesting point. Like it's definitely not for. Like it's for the wrong reasons, but it doesn't mean that they're wrong quotes, which kind of is what made, I mean, Trump kind of ends up running. Like, um, I remember the first person to make this point that I heard was, uh, Mark Blythe, the economist that, that kind of made the point that like Trump speaking to like a real, a real, um, in 2016, I mean, um, like against Hillary Clinton, like, like he's running on a real, uh, like set of problems that are plaguing Americans in the middle of the country. Now it's there. He doesn't have any solutions that are going to help them, but the Democrats won't even acknowledge that those are problems. Like it, it, it ends up just being like, you know, the, the, what's the answer? Learn to code. That's the answer. You know what I mean? Like it's as if it's not an actual issue that, that can actually be addressed. I mean, it's always feels like the Democrats are trying to uh, gaslight you in a way. Yeah. On, on multiple levels, because, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, as they're the neoliberal champions of the poor, you know, I mean, I, I don't think that anybody like I like I would never say that, you know, harm reduction is voting for um, either a third party right now or Republicans. Like, obviously, that's far more detri detrimental to the American voter. But at the same time, like there's a constant image of Democrats as like the champion of the poor as everything is neoliberalized under Democrats. Um you know what I mean? Like, and, and it just continues and it doesn't change. And now our, our president is the guy from the nineties that was fucking on TV yelling like racist shit about how like crime is up and we need to just throw, like throw super predators in jail. And he comes back. Like every, every single problem can be traced back to Biden that we've had mm -hmm. since the 1990s. Like anytime there's a bad policy, you can see Biden in, in literally like there's literally just video of Biden championing it. And it's, yeah. and it's really hard to argue that he's on, on, on some level better than Trump. I mean, his rhetoric was in this election, but like you, you see him on literally on fire in the 1990s, pushing the crime bill mm -hmm. and, and desperately worried that people are going to make the point that, oh, well, maybe you're not so liberal. He's like, well, there's a new consensus. There's a new bipartisan consensus right now that we need to throw all these people in jail. And right. if, de if Democrats aren't telling you that, it's because, like, you know, they're afraid to say it because they're too liberal or whatever. But I'm going to say it. I'm a different kind of Democrat. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's yeah. The whole honest talk thing is. Hey, Hutch, by the way, uh, squashed his beef with us. <laughs> <laughs> and then we need to get back to Walker because I, I. I well, I think I think this actually to tie it into Walker, though, you, you did some some stuff on uh Cox's current politics, where he's even he's like almost too cynical now for American politics. And like he was talking about Trump derangement syndrome and mm -hmm. and all that. Like when they, when they think, were comparing Trump to Walker, uh, whatever interviewer was talking to him was like, oh, don't you see a direct connection between like Trump's uh, authoritarian dictatorial style of politics, like rhetorical style of politics and Walker? And he's like, no. I, I see Biden and Walker kind of, you know, because Biden just like kept walking as uh, everybody else was like you know, getting like around that. him. And, like you know, Biden kept walking. Yes. 
We always make weekend at Bernie's joke about Bernie's, but I feel like that's really applies to Biden because he's been practically dead since 1991. And um, yet he still gets pushed through somehow. I mean, like that that man's political career has always baffled me because I've known about him since since he got caught plagiarizing and like when I was a kid. Um, and and it's just like he doesn't go away. He's always there. Right. Like he's he's like a germ that just will never, never get cured. And as far as our prospects for the future, it like goes um, and imperialism and all and all that, I think our imperial I think our imperial hegemony is clearly fading um, because however much shit they want to talk about China, neither side can afford to go to war over it. The you And that's very clear. Um, and, and he's angry that he can't. uh you know that that, that he, he can't go to war against China, and he's always railing against China, and he blames China for everything. And he I, went and to I the did, right of Trump on China when when they I, ran, they were like, yeah. he's like he's like this guy loves China. And Trump's like, well, this guy loves China, China. He loves it. <laughs> and they were going back and forth trying to get to the right of each other. It on was China. kind of a and reactionary of them, off on China specifically, yeah. and neither like, neither of them could get to the right of the other one because they kept on. China and Cuba were the two things that neither of them could get to the right of each other on, which is why, you know, we're, we're in this fuck situation with Biden just pretty much like openly calling for Cuban regime change. And also at a point where, you know, like our, our China policy is going to be fucked because we can't afford to go to war with China. Right. We literally, but we literally just can't. So there needs to be another solution. Well, I mean, <laughs> look, my, my, my big thing, again, I'm going to be echoing Danny, Danny Besner here, but like, um, if we don't wake up on this China issue, like and start normalizing relations, and I'm not even to argue on moral grounds, like I'm not a super big China stand actually, but like we have to do that solely for the environment. Um, yeah. we're the two, we are, we're the two biggest polluted countries. China's number one, we're number two, we're number one per capita, they're number one in raw now by a lot. Um, China's doing more to invest in green energy, but we really need to work together and get it and to do this really fast. Um, and we, we can't, this is all impossible now because of, because of this like co-war posturing shit. And what, what's amazing to me is like, you would think this Walker movie, and so we can try it back, um, would not feel <laughs> relevant at all right now. Right. We, we are so beyond the cold war now. And yet somehow we're but not. They, they it, it also were... proves it was never really about anything. <laughs> yeah. No, but during during I'd, I'd argue that during the Reagan administration, we were also beyond the Cold War. Now, not rhetorically, but no, with, but we had already effectively. Literal... Yeah, we, no, we had we had won that uh, that 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 set of conflicts because it's not it's not a war. It's literally just a set of proxy conflicts. So we had won that set of proxy conflict, uh, conflicts by that even point. Though, even though we lost them, which is also kind of fascinating. Yeah. But we had won by, like... Be, we kind I of mean, I, outspent them. Yeah, I mean, we, we outspent them and... And they beat us in the space race, too. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's like... It's like... Yeah. You actually well, look they spent all their money sure sending did. Jeff Bezos to space, so what do they have left by the end of that? <laughs> Um, so, so that means the people will win after Jeff Bezos goes to space. No, no. But we could have. Um, no. See, my my whole thing was I was I, no. I keep making this joke, but like 
<laughs> I, I think Bill Gates, I think, I think what should have happened is Jeff Bezos goes to space. Elon Musk goes to space. Uh, you know what I mean? Like uh, the Virgin Mobile guy goes to space. Fucking um, uh, Richard Branson or whatever. They all go to space at the same time. Cue Bill Gates setting up his dome that's supposed to go around the Earth and block out sun rays for like 10 years. Traps the three of them in space. And 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 so they're just trapped there. And then Bill Gates is like, well, now you have one ultra sinister billionaire instead of like four. And I'm the one now that's going to take control. And then the world gets controlled by by Bill Gates, who probably immediately both enslaves and destroys the third world, which definitely it, it sucks. But like now we have just four you know billionaires fighting, and like it just doesn't seem like it's a sustainable system. It well, sounds then you like have you're. Tim I was about to say, isn't this the plot to Highlander 2? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's Highlander 2, but we got rid of three billionaires this time. Like, <laughs> I say, where, where does old Tim Apple fall on this? This podcast uh, is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> <laughs> they still have a foundation. And- there could be only one billionaire. Yeah. Did you guys see the article that was like uh, the child labor article? In the Guardian, that was, and then underneath it, it was like child labor should be judged based on the country that it takes place in, like, and their local traditions. And then underneath it, it said, uh, This article is brought to you by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. <laughs> that shit was dark. Wow. <laughs> that, is dark. that is really dark. That really is. But also, it's, it's, I mean, literally dark, but Bill Gates wants to block out the sun, which is literally the plot of the Simpsons movie. Yes, it, <laughs> it is Come a Simpsons movie. It is Highlander 2. <laughs> It is. It is. <laughs> I was thinking Armageddon, but I, I could be totally off. Yeah, Bill, Bill Gates is Mr. Burns at this point. Like, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> oh, Kermit man. the Frog, uh, Mr. Burns. Kind of, kind of looks and sounds like Kermit the Frog. But anyway, so back to Walker, <laughs> I guess, for some closing thoughts because you know we've been going for a while. Um, I so one thing I wanted to talk about was the soundtrack, obviously. Which uh, you know, it's all Joe Strummer. Yeah. Well, although Chandler uh, Schloss was a co-ranger and um, played a bunch of instruments on that, like you know, Xander Schloss was kind of Joe Strummer's guy in the studio. It was like his secret weapon at so the end of his life. One of the most affecting weird scenes where like uh, Granada's on fire and there's that weird trippy music. Um, I realized where I'd heard Not that Granada. It's, it's Granada. Granada, excuse me. Um, oh, Granada. Um, it the uh, that I realized where I'd heard that before. Deaf in June, the quasi fash band had sampled it, so just just that was weird. Um, some some awkward wet brownness and musical taste, but uh, th- that both those soundtracks are fucking amazing. Both of them are actually. Um, uh, Straight to Hell is a lot more punk. But there's some stuff I didn't even know. Like when I was listening to it, I, I was watching it with my partner who's a musician, and she's like, This soundtrack is weird when we were watching Walker. And I was like, and it's mostly by Joe Strummer. And it doesn't sound like the clash like at all. Like well, do you ever listen to later is it Joe Strummer? Like uh before yeah. you know, like right before he passed, it was it was a lot more universal than than um uh you know that then you you know what what uh he, he gets thought about today. You know, it's the, it's the clash or whatever. Hey! Let's make that wiener kid sing his song. Wanna? 
Sing, kid. Sing or die. That song is so freaking awesome. And Xander Schloss just, you know, just slaps right there. Um, Yo, there's, the, there's the two Xanders. Yes. Xander Schloss, Xander Berkeley. And, and now we've seen all four of his movies that he was in in the 80s. Are, is, are, are those the only ones he was in in the 80s? Uh, as, as an actor, yeah, because he was in Tape Heads, um, which we watched on my channel. And, yeah. and uh, uh, he was, it was, uh, was it Kevin the Nerd and uh, Repo Man. He um, tweeted at me and called me Mr. Movie Night Extravaganza, which well, was, uh, yeah, is it which, Xander Berkeley? Yeah, because I think he read my Twitter bio. Yeah, but, um, don't talk about Xander Schloss. Oh, Xander Schloss. Yeah, because he's he, he was uh he was Alex Cox's like personal person because Repo Man is the first movie he's obviously in with Alex Cox. Um, because his first like you know what I mean like feature film and. Uh, I was listening to a uh, an interview that he did today, Alex Cox, I mean, and he was calling uh, Xander Schloss his like personal character actor, which is kind of funny yeah. because they were talking about how um, he had to put Harry Dean Stanton in the lead role in in, uh, in Repo Man, and obviously he's kind of known for being a character actor. You know what I mean? Like he kind of put a character actor in the lead role. So then putting, uh, which Ed Harris kind of was also, I think, at the point of making Walker like kind of a character, like. You know what I mean? Like he's not—he's not a lead actor. Well, he's not—he's not a star yet. Uh, but yeah. he was playing leads. I mean, he was the, uh, the his very first movie role. He was playing the main villain. Um, yeah, but, I mean, but he's which is borderline. But he's specifically cast as villains. 
You know what I mean? Yeah. Like well, no, because captain. his follow-up film, he played the king of the motorcycle knights. Well, because because <laughs> because of this movie, because of uh, in 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 Walker, he ended up putting a shitload of his own money into it. And I actually have a a, a clip where Alex Cox talks about this. He did. He was angry at the fact, or bitter at the fact that he was always cast as um as villains or like the villain's henchmen or like the villain. And he ended up um putting up like a shitload of his salary into Walker because he believed that Walker would make him seen as a leading man. So, I mean, Alex Cox is kind of a dick about the way he, he says this. Here, I'll pull it up. But the way, the, the way that he says this is kind of like I, Ed Harris um, ended up putting all of his own money in because we were doing so many close-ups, which is kind of funny because just looking at the fact that they're going to fucking Nicaragua, making this movie with the Sandinistas, like you don't think that's the movie necessarily that you know studio executives are going to see all those close-ups and go, well, the thing that I think is great about this movie is the performances. You know what I mean? Like, they're going to fucking run from it. But it, it did work out for him, I think. Um, you know, There was a point, too, in the film where um, when the equipment all got lost um, um, on the way to the, the set and the movie fell back a week, um, we all put our salaries back into the film to pay for that week. Uh, me, Ed, and the executive producer. And Ed was very solid in that way, you know. At the same time, he was looking to the future and he was thinking, well, you know, if I get a reputation as a leading man from this film, my next picture, I'll charge a million dollars for my fee, you know, which he did. It was The Abyss, directed by James Cameron. <laughs> but even so, he did our film for pennies. That that quote is amazing when you think about the fact that when he says did our film for pennies, he's talking about going down to Nicaragua and making a film literally with the Sandinistas cast as the background actors throughout it. Um <laughs> which is not necessarily like which is something that you have to put a lot of political faith that that's gonna be the right outcome into. So I don't know if it's necessarily fair to say, oh well, it's just because of his uh he wanted to be a leading man, and that's why he did it. Because it's a politically risky gamble. I don't think that you could argue that it's not. It <laughs> no, it's a pretty big one. I'm actually surprised that Harris didn't pay more for it. I mean, I think about, like, look, if you want to make Bernie Sanders mad, mention that he went to meet Daniel Ortega. Yeah. Like, it pisses him off. I don't think he should be ashamed of it, but it pisses him off because it's like something that he was stuck with for years. And um, even, even more than like being nice to the Soviet Union and like going over there and saying some like splitting the baby stuff that he did in the early 80s, apparently. But like... like he just Daniel, got really, really drunk there and sang a lot of fucking folk songs right, with them. Right. After, after they had already lost the Cold War. <laughs> right. <how> <laughs> um. But that's not the point. That's not the sticking point. It is the Sandinista stuff. And, you know, in hindsight, the Sandinista stuff doesn't even look that, that, you know, like it, it's serious, but mo most people more, even common liberal opinion now is on the side of the Sandinistas. And yet it's still a sore point for Sanders today. Um, so I see the thing that the thing that I think is, yeah, it had to be a risk. The, the thing that the thing that I no it hundred percent was a risk but the thing that I find absolutely fascinating about that is that I kind of have an argument that I've been kind of uh debuting a lot I don't think necessarily on this show but definitely when I was talking to Ben about stuff like 
you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. on GTA, I've definitely like kind of made this argument. Like the, the time that it seems like the most reactionary far right elements of both the Republican Party and the conservative movement really lose ground is when somebody goes so far over the line that it's kind of undeniable even to like, you know, like moderate centrists that can be brought into reactionary sentiment that like this is something that's that's too far gone. And like, mm-hmm. I, I would argue there's a bunch of points that we've reached that, but it, it feels like Reagan's Operation Condor uh, exploits and funding the Contras were kind of those things that if he had just kept it to, if he had kept it kind of down and, and it wasn't necessarily found out about and he wasn't funding the most bloodthirsty evil forces uh, destroying democracy in Central America, like Reagan, that's, that's a point where, and I don't think it's necessarily remembered, but that's the point where Reagan stepped over the line to the point where public opinion is, to this day against him right um so it, it, it's i think that you can very i think that you could definitely make make the argument that um liberal opinion is in favor of of, of the sandinistas at this point after knowing how bloodthirsty the contras was were and how bloodthirsty that whole conflict was but at the same time like it's an interesting it's a risk because you don't know that history is going to end up on that side no you don't and they sh- i mean like cox paid for it I mean, to be fair, even Sanders paid for it. I mean, and I think that's why it's such, I think that's why it's such a point of bad blood when he's asked in in interviews now. Um, I think it also ties into the Cuba comments that he's made where he's like, oh, well, you know, Cuba did educate people, which is an undeniable point. Yeah. And they have, they have a really good health service too for, for a country with no money. Like, which, which is, which is honestly the most ironic point about us having an embargo is that they've had to fend, they've had to create all of their own uh, they've had to create all of their own state apparatuses. Now, obviously, our point on this side of it is at some point we're going to starve them out to the point where they overthrow their government. Like that's the point of the embargo. But it hasn't. Have worked. we ever done? The thing is, these embargoes have never done that. <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> but, but that's like the but that's like the theory behind why there should right. be an embargo. Is like at some point people get so uh hungry and so angry at the fact that they can't like that the u.s uh, has embargoed them that they overthrow their government because they're like you know what like we we can't do this anymore we're literally fucking dying like that's our uh, that's our point behind it so it, it but it's also means that in cuba's case which arguably is the most successful uh government that proclaimed to be communist whether you, whether you you know i mean whatever parties you want to argue about it like proclaim themselves a communist government like like the ussr fell like most of them have fallen. Cuba didn't fall, but that also means that an embargo meant that they had to literally control all of their own apparatuses, which meant that the, 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 the state of Cuba, like the Cuban government, now had a full hold over everybody in Cuba, which doesn't make any fucking sense from the point of like, let's say you want, let's say you want Cuba to not, um, let's say you want the Cuban government to fall. Well, the, the worst thing you can possibly do is end free trade and mm-hmm. literally make them in charge of all of their own shit. And I understand that the, 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 the point is that no one, everyone's like, oh, well, we didn't assume that that would happen. But like people still arguing for an embargo in 2021 that are then like, oh, we should overthrow the Cuban government and there should be an embargo. It's not going to fucking work. It hasn't worked. That's the opposite of the point you should be making. The point you yeah. should be making is free trade and neoliberalization, which I don't agree with this obviously either. But like ending the embargo and, and letting free trade in would loosen the hold that the government has on the islands. And then, the, you know, the people of Cuba would obviously make their own choice about, you know, wh- who they want in power. But it's this insecurity about capitalism that I think is fucking hilarious. Conservatives are, by definition, insecure. The thing that they're proclaiming is the only thing that's ever worked, works. They, they, they don't believe that 
if given the choice that that would work and it's like well pick one pick one or pick one or the other you know what i mean like either either this thing is 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 so amazing that it's the 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 full uh like human potential has been realized through capitalism things can't get better okay so give everybody the choice to do that oh no we're going to embargo cuba because we want to overthrow their government well then you're taking away the ability for that even to be you're just assuming that at some point they're going to starve themselves out of it which is not a not logical it hasn't proven true it hasn't proven true because you know the, the the thing is that if they did overthrow their government at that point the u.s would be their government and they don't want that <laughs> so I've, I've i don't know i'm 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 fired up about this because i've had this argument with like 20 people every time i've posted pro-cuban sentiment in the actual term of i think cuba should decide their own future without any u.s interference yeah whatsoever. yeah I, I, like like uh, you know I, I move in left circles where i'm normally attacked for not being pro-cuba enough but even but i've very much been we we need to end the embargo and stay the fuck out of it like mm -hmm. nothing that we do in cuba is gonna be good for cubans it's not gonna be good for us either and so yeah. like like so so you know um and it's ironic to me that the Democrats have been running from, frankly, one of the two effective policies of the goddamn Obama administration, with the only two effective yeah. policies of the goddamn yeah. Obama administration, was the normalization of relations with Cuba and the normalization of relations with Iran. <laughs> like... no, and, and not only just the Democrats have been running from it, those are things that Biden worked for. Right, I know. It's, Biden it's, was the vice president of an administration that made diplomatic gains in two areas. Afghanistan was a failure. Mm -hmm. Getting out of Iraq and being in Iraq, both were failures. Libya was a fucking failure. Those are things that the Obama administration got involved with that failed. Two things, by any stretch of the imagination, that were positive were that all of a sudden the Iran's government had less of a hold over them because of the like because of the iran deal all of a sudden they're like oh we're, we're not going to do anything like we'll, we'll listen to the terms of this deal which they still were doing in the trump administration like you know what i mean like when it was clear that trump was going to break that deal cuba the same thing people were literally going to cuba for like tourism trips that's not how you maintain fucking communism in a country you don't have a bunch of fucking tourists go over there you know what i mean like so by their own stated aims those are two things that should have been positive. If you yeah, like I said, we stuck at imperialism. None of that stuff was positive at all. No, but we don't even neoliberalize countries, right? No. We're the biggest neo. We're like we're probably one of like one of the biggest neoliberal countries ever. Well, so, so you want to no, 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 no. Let me rephrase that. Let me rephrase that. We're probably like half of neoliberal country a no, big portion are, of us are we, progressive we are the neoliberal if, if, state yeah are, i understand yeah 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 of course yeah state. i understand yeah i understand but what i'm saying what i'm trying to make is we are half of, of the neoliberal state but we can't even as you say neoliberal uh push neoliberal, neoliberal uh policies correctly and we're, half we're, of uh, a half of not even necessarily push them. We can't properly back up the thing that we claim is our theory of global politics. The Clintonite thing that if given the chance, countries will democratize, countries will, will open themselves up to free trade, and countries will neoliberalize. 
We are not oh. confident enough about that position to back it up. We need to continue meddling in countries. If you took your if if you took some of the countries that we have the biggest hold on, let that hold go, that theory would have to be put to the test. Because at that point it's is Cuba going to be uh, like is Cuba going to keep the government they have or is Cuba going to become like a more neoliberalized uh state? But we're not confident in the fact that they would because you know we we continue in an embargo on them, which is the opposite. If we're pushing free trade policies, we've eliminated trade. That doesn't make any sense from a point well, of... to, 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 since we're we're on a Cuba ramp, but yeah, to, we, we to... probably need to wind this down because I have actually work to uh, to do tonight. Yeah, um, I was supposed to hang out with a friend at nine thirty, and I'm I've been yeah, you're in heaven. I we, we really do need to, yeah. to to wind this down. We should also say um, it looks like Chantel Brown won in Ohio eleven, uh, unfortunately, wow. which is Jesus which is Christ. like. You know, which is again, you know, if if we allowed, uh, sorry. sorry, you know, it's basically it the same thing as <laughs> uh, as as other, um, you know, involving ourselves in other elections and other parts of the world that we just let people from the outside come in and 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 you know shove their their Trump money down um, uh, Chantel Brown's. How did she get two million dollars? She had the biggest. She had the biggest back in Hillary Clinton. Yeah. No, it's just that was like one of the biggest fucking. Oh, yeah. So anyway, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm gonna go out on a little But let's just let's bring it back to the music. Xander Schloss. Um... <laughs> Maybe and Chantal Brown on uh, Google News. It's like it's like Chantal Brown wins primary. Hillary endorsed Cl uh, candidate Chantal Brown faces potential ethics probe is the second <laughs> article that comes up, which makes it more fucked up. Um, yeah, but no, so the music, the music, I, I really, I mean, it's one of the few soundtracks that I've listened to, I think, that I've really just vibed with. Like, I was biking. I, I apologize, by the way, for my to the, F -F to the walkers. No, that's fine. Yeah, but the music go ahead, is go ahead. really absolutely go something you can vibe with. I think that's something we all need tonight. Just go on Spotify, crank up some Walker, uh, you know, pull out some country. non Walker. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Invade, invade your neighbor's house. It doesn't yeah. matter. <laughs> Especially if they're Nicaraguan. Yeah. <laughs> oh, by the way, I wanted to bring up one thing that I wanted to bring up in this, and then and then I'll 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 go I'll throw to you guys for final thoughts on this. But the one scene that I wanted to bring up that was obviously heart-wrenching is when fucking crazy eyes on the side of his head like a Simpsons character Ed Harris by the end of it because <laughs> I mean, his face gets more and more crazy which the the job he did acting in this movie was fucking amazing but, and then like yeah that's but, he gets but, more crazy so the, the movie gets more crazy most heartbreaking was when he's reading from the book and uh and, and he's reading about slavery and his like you know what I mean like and 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 talking about like the American Negro and he's reading to his like lieutenant that literally is black like you know what I mean, and, and the entire movie obviously it's like, oh well, he's been like an anti-slavery figure, which in real life, like you know what I mean, like at first he was, and then obviously he's doing it like for economic reasons, and obviously because he's a fucking dictator at that point and trying to continue his control over a, a country with like you know no um, organic way of doing it. So slavery is his idea, which already is the most unhinged scene I think. But most unhinged scene is when he's reading from the book about how you know the American Negro and uh, the indigenous Nicaraguan. Are, are the most possible like are the most um are, are the servile. most likely candidate yeah yeah servile and like um he, i think he has like another word he used that i was like ah oh, fuck this is like hard to watch like but that, yeah. that, that scene was heartbreaking 
Um, but Andy, final thoughts. I had a blast watching them. I can't believe I missed these two movies uh, before now. Um, uh, and it was a, absolutely terrific to kind of catch up and uh, kind of see where like other films kind of popped up out of. Because, you know, um, Straight to Hell totally inspired most of the um, uh, the Tarantino 90s um, move of cinema. So, so that's an absolute masterpiece. And Walker really does kind of fill in some holes of mine because Nicaragua is certainly a, a, a country I have not spent enough time studying um, as compared to say like Honduras or, um, uh, you know, a lot of other countries in the uh, South and Central yeah. America. An interesting uh, point on that, by the way, the, the connection between um, Nicaragua and Honduras is that um, the president of uh, Nicaragua who um, was like their, their like most liberal reformist president that we kind of overthrew was was Zelaya, and then the president of Honduras, the Obama administration overthrew was Manuel Zelaya. So it's an interesting, you know, they had the same two regime change, uh, like over a century apart, two regime change operations that overthrew uh, presidents of these two countries with the same name, last name. Which Manuel Manuel Zelaya was an interesting character, but. Yeah. Yes. That's a whole other can of worms. We don't want to get a big can of worms. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Barn. Um, unfortunately, anything we touch on geopolitics means we're gonna go off on geopolitics. We apologize for that. Uh, Alex, I I think Walker is a criminally underrated movie. You should definitely watch. I think Straight the Hell is fun, and. Um, if, if you're someone that like is a film student like I was that like wants to see a, a an incredible experiment in in filmmaking, I think Straight to Hell is is something that you have to watch. It's got this great manic energy. Um, from all the coffee, yeah, from all the coffee, <laughs> coffee, um, and and it's 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 actually there's just so much, so many scenes from it are obviously influential in so many other movies. Um, Walker, interestingly, is not that influential in other movies. Um, I, I don't know that there are many other films like it, actually. Um, e um, even with the anachronisms coming in directly towards the end, as we reach the fever pitch of the of the movie, there's the, the anachronisms get start compounding to like make make the point drive the point home, and yet it's not annoying. Um, it's no, it's amazing. Yeah, its tone is all over the place, admittedly, but that's true for every Alice Cox movie. But you know that it's this time. You know that it, you know that it's telling you something, and actually, even more than like Repo Man, you know what it's telling you. Even yeah. it's not just like it's telling us something. I kind of have an idea. It it, <laughs> it it it's uh, it it has a clear message, and I think it's it's really self aware. I think. I think the last thing I'd say about Cox as a director and, and which, you know, if you guys come back to him, I'd definitely be interested, but um, we're definitely going to do, do Sid and Nancy as a right. stream soon within the next month. Cox <laughs> understands Cox is like Verhoeven. This is in another way that he sees things about American culture that I don't even think he totally understands what he sees, but he portrays it accurately. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd argue that Cox more is more aware of the things that he sees in American culture than Verhoeven was. I don't necessarily think that's true for Verhoeven's uh, screenwriters. 
You know what I mean? Because because mm-hmm. like RoboCop isn't obviously written by Verhoeven. Starship Troopers is, and by that point he'd been in the U.S. for a long enough time that that is a point that he was driving home with Starship Troopers. RoboCop, I think, I mean, at least in Verhoeven's own words, he was a little bit more. Um, in his own words, he was a little bit more uh, hands off for that because it's his first American movie. He'd only first American mm. movie. Um, I watched I watched The Room again last night. I'll, so I'll defend Showgirls <laughs> too is actually a good uh, satire on American life, where Verhoeven's yeah. actually onto something. So his, um, his, I, I think I think RoboCop is immensely onto something, which is funny that Alex Cox was originally considered to direct RoboCop. Um, at one point, um, I I just think maybe I mean you know from from Verhoeven's own words maybe RoboCop was a little bit more hands-off um, in him understanding the political points he was making than anything that Alex Cox has done because Alex Cox has been, had been, um, I was listening to a, an interview he did today where he was talking about like the decade before he made uh, Repo Man. He'd been in the United States. He was, you know, he was, he was going to UCLA. Like, mm-hmm. so he was kind of at a point where he understood American culture enough to make these points. I don't think Verhoeven really was. Uh, it's, John? It's- Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. First off, I just want to apologize once again for my little outburst during the Needy Turner talk. Uh, you're gonna have to probably edit that out uh, later, of course. Um, this is live, baby. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) sorry, my emotions got the better of me. Uh, I I just yelled about people Uh, for 10 minutes, so I don't even think you're the worst. The worst oh. offender in that category. <laughs> All right. Um, I actually was looking at the uh, the cast of this movie, and I was impressed that um, Richard Mazur uh, plays Ephraim, and he's a really good character. He p- actually played. Um, I'm going to go on a Stephen King tangent here because he played the adult uh, Stan Uris in the 1990 version. 1990 version of it. Um, that, that really kind of caught my caught my eye. I was like, "Yeah, I know this guy." Yeah. All right. Okay. That's one we haven't. That's one we haven't brought up. Um, yeah. I I think well, that, I think I think that Alex Cox has a uh, even more than someone like Kubrick has an understanding, or even like Scorsese has an understanding of filmmaking history, like to the point where his job after he got blacklisted was to be a, an intro to film professor. Like, you know what I mean? Like, which is something that he still does, and apparently now has a podcast. And wouldn't want to come on our podcast because he has his own podcast that does the exact same fucking thing. But um, <laughs> well, he also no, acts now too. I, yeah, he's got a so, new movie where he's uh, it's directed by the uh, special effects guy from RoboCop. Nice. So there we go. If we, can if we do RoboCop, I think Alex Cox is, is an amazing is an amazing director coming through at a moment where I mean, obviously, there's this uh, there's this tangible. Um, like meeting place between the punk rock cultures of, of the UK and the US. So it's yeah. kind of beautiful to see that kind of coming to fruition in a way that I don't think that we've really had um, that many other countries that have had similar uh, pop culture movements to us that have come together in a way that has, I mean, maybe French New Wave and stuff, but like, you know, I or like in, in like French cinema, like maybe, maybe, maybe that would be something that you could argue that point with. But I think with, uh, Alex Cox, he's really coming at a at a music moment, like, and he's not a musician, which makes it kind of really cool that that's his milieu. Yeah. Um. All right. Well, point, I'm gonna like, let you guys I'm gonna let you guys go now because it's been a it's been a two hours and ten minutes. I'm sorry it took this long, and I'm sorry I ranted about Cuba for long enough to keep you guys on stream. No, but okay. I, I was of course joined by Jay Andrew World. Um, you want to plug anything? 
Um, I, I just uh, hosted GTAA, um, which was a fun look back at uh, the Todd McFarlane, Peter David debate. So uh, you can find that on, on GTAA. All right, Varn. Uh, check out Varn blog. We're going to be, uh, somebody will be on tomorrow. Um, I can't even keep up anymore. Uh, no, uh, I'll be interviewing. Uh, actually, there won't be a stream tomorrow. I'll be interviewing somebody for the audio only. Um, Ted, uh, Ted Reese, the uh, Grossman scholar. Um, I've, uh, I also want to plug other people's shows. I've been on, uh, I was the odd non DSA member over on meet the left last weekend. Um, you guys should check that out if it's still available. And, um, did you say something fucked up enough for them to take it down? No. <laughs> uh, it's just, Twitch is weird. Um, right. And yeah. they put, it on, they put uh, it on YouTube as well. Cause I've been on meet the left. Um, <laughs> And uh, uh, what else? Oh, and uh, go check out uh, a Andy's Bad Takes because I was on it last week. Um, and we talked about another movie set and more, and actually generic non Latin America <laughs> with nothing important to say, um, <laughs> but a kind of guilty conscience about it. Um, and you guys should check that out. Um, I am also on Zero Books, Mortal Science. Uh, I, I'm, I'm way too much left media. I should probably stop. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm really surprised that every single time I've asked you to be on this, you're like, yeah. I sure. like, I like talking about movies. <laughs> I think, um, I think we're gonna have the the superstructure pod uh crew on on the 17th. So oh, in nice. Two weeks, um. So after that, after that nice little uh, Twitter spat, which you know is my fault because I said I worded my tweet in a dumb way, but they were they were nice enough to agree to come on um, soon. John, cool. yeah. Um, so you can find me on uh, the John Ross Show. That's TGRS uh, Monday through Friday, nine to five. No, that's nine a.m. to five p.m. on Twitch. Um, I also have a Substack blog. That's uh, TGRS.substack.com. I am kind of, um, it's kind of dormant at the, at the moment. I'm trying to uh, blog weekly. So, um, and I'm, I'm also, uh, there's a Patreon that I just started for the show. So uh, please, if you can, if anyone can, uh, give what you can. Keep the show okay. going because I just started it. Well, That's I'm going gonna, gonna to end this by saying we're liberating this country for democracy.